Good evening, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How is everybody doing tonight? I hope all is well out there in uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave. As long as we are, right? We are. You know, uh, as much as I say that we uh, stand to lose our, uh, our freedom and we still have it on paper, I'm pretty sure I can say that uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave, that is not just on paper, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. How is everyone doing this evening? Thank you all for joining us live here tonight on this uh, marvelous uh, Wednesday, January 19th, 2021, for a new edition of The Sea Report. I am your host, Mr. C., and uh, like I said, we are coming to you live right now. So if you are part of that live audience, it is much appreciated. And uh, I apologize, we're going on a little bit late tonight. I had a whole lot of things. I had a, I had a busy plate, a busy plate. I had a full plate and a busy day today. And uh, so uh, just trying to get everything down and get everything done. And uh, make sure that I can at least uh, deliver a report to you all for this evening on uh, a little bit about what's going on and uh, stuff like that. You know, the usual. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we are here, we are live, and we do have a, uh, we have a, a good show for you guys today. Um, we're going to step outside of the box of the headlines that uh, we normally see, hear about, read. The things that I normally talk about to you guys now. As you all are aware, uh, we are uh, smack dab uh, towards the end of uh, the end of the month, and uh, this month, of course, as uh, we mentioned, uh, is Human Trafficking and uh, Prevention and Awareness Month. Well, you know, I guess it's uh, officially Human Trafficking Prevention Month, uh, but I do like to tag on uh, the awareness. Uh, because after all, being aware is part of the prevention, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? So uh, we've been having this discussion uh, for a few weeks now, talking about uh, some cases. Now, of course, we highlighted some of the things that our government is currently doing to, uh, you know, uh, prevent, stop, bring awareness uh, to uh, the crime that is uh, what I consider to be uh, the scourge of uh, this this time, uh, regardless of uh, the fact that human trafficking and uh, that type of slavery and anything that goes into it has been in existence uh, for thousands of years, um, centuries, centuries old practice. Uh, it is something that uh, um, some of us out there in the world uh, don't, uh, don't feel that it is uh, an activity that humans still actually participate in. Um, as if though uh, that practice were so barbaric uh, that uh, we just uh, kind of uh, ignore the fact that it could still be a possibility. After all, we are living in a civilized world, aren't we? Uh, we have uh, advanced technologies, advanced this and that. Uh, you know, we've uh, come so far since the days of, oh, who knows, Noah, you know. But uh, fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, it is still something that happens to this day uh, on the small scale and on the large scale. You know, uh, um, the stories that we still hear about in the news and it is very encouraging. Don't get me wrong. 
when we're talking about uh, the stories about, uh, you know, the, the police busting up uh, sex trafficking rings, uh, you know, even uh, three-letter agencies, you know, uh, busting up sex trafficking rings and uh, bringing, these, uh, bringing these criminals to justice. Um, but, but like, like we uh, shared with some of the stories uh, earlier on this month, uh, you know, those are the smaller types of human trafficking examples. Uh, and like I said, it's encouraging to see that those stories are still out there and that we know it is still happening. Now, I can vouch for a fact that prior to about 2016, 2017, uh, those were stories that we weren't hearing too much about. We weren't uh, hearing about the uh, efforts uh, that we were um, uh, seeing unfold, uh, multiple states, multiple agencies working in tandem, um, you know, just really putting, uh, putting the effort, the time, and also uh, in some instances, uh, like in the state of Florida, you know, really putting the money into it. And uh, we're seeing like, uh, well, Florida is probably the primary example here because uh, uh, in this one report that we shared with y'all that actually scored um, uh, the states on uh, individually on how they were doing in their efforts to uh, stop, prevent, and or educate about human trafficking, the state of Florida actually scored the highest uh, in that regard. And uh, a lot of that also came from the fact that uh, they also put a lot of resources into um, taking care of and uh, helping the victims to rehabilitate, you know, uh, such as uh, such as having social workers and uh, uh, those in the uh, psychiatric field present during the raids and during the stings and operations in order to assist with the victims, rather than having the victims handcuffed and taken away as if though they were actually part of that crime. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I laud Florida for their efforts and uh, for being amongst the higher ranked states. Now, on a scale of A, B, C, D, and F, I was going to say and E, um, actually, uh, I think Florida scored a C. Uh, and then the rests were D's and F's, guys, uh, in the States. So that's very disheartening. But that brings up a good point, though, you know, uh, and the point, of course, in that would be uh, that we as a nation could do a whole lot more than we are doing right now. And uh, the fact that our states, uh, you know, majority speaking, are, um, you know, uh, scoring so low, some as to fail, you know, on a simple, uh, a simple analysis of uh, the kind of job that they're doing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what should that indicate to us, do you think? Uh, that perhaps maybe it is uh, something that is, is uh, more in depth, and it is also um, something that is more mm, uh, invasive, perhaps? Well, as you guys may recall, on one of our previous shows on this topic, uh, we were actually starting to get into um, more stories, and these are all historical and documented cases that we're presenting here that actually involve, um, involve the participation on some level of uh, entities within our government. So um, we're actually going to continue on that path tonight, just as I promised that you would. We would uh, continue this conversation and, uh, and remind those people who are already aware of it, 
and also educate and inform those who are not aware of these cases and stories uh, on tonight's show. So I would say, ladies and gentlemen, that you should probably be, be prepared for a pretty heavy show tonight because, of course, this topic is not an easy topic to talk about. Uh, in some instances, it is not an easy uh, topic to stomach. And in uh, most instances, it is not an easy topic uh, to, uh, uh, to really want to be involved in. Uh, but for as gruesome and as uh, disgusting and abhorrent as these stories are and the crimes uh, that go around them, I just like to encourage the individuals uh, that for all of the, um, all of this, the discomfort it might bring us, um, uh, just imagine the, the, the t thousands of times uh, more uh, pain and discomfort and, uh, and uh, tragic um, places that those who have been involved in these situations actually go through. And uh, if they have to go through these situations, we as a cognizant public can at least uh, do our part to become aware of it uh, so that we can, we can also assist in that prevention, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, now, when we're talking about the involvement of the government, and uh, it could be any government in particular, but of course we are going to focus on uh, our government here in the United States of America and who may have been involved in it. Uh, really, any, any, it gets really hard to uh, to find a way to help assist prevent um, I mean and as you'll see through the story that we'll be talking about tonight uh, tonight is probably one of the more uh, famous popular readily known cases in regards to the government's involvement with human trafficking and of course in this instance uh, that would be uh, child sex trafficking uh, pederasty and uh, child rape ladies and gentlemen and it like I said it's not it's not an easy topic to get into. Uh, the documentary we will be watching tonight, it, is, uh, it has graphic language. Uh, fortunately, not graphic uh, visuals, but the language of the document is graphic. So I will uh, warn the audiences now um, that uh, you're going to hear some things that uh, you may not want to hear um, or possibly even things that you had no idea uh, humans could do to other human beings. Uh, but like I said, it is one of the more uh, well-known cases uh, that I find rather interesting in some instances that some people have never heard about it. And that, again, is why we are sharing the story here tonight, because uh, as time moves along, ladies and gentlemen, as the, uh, as the, uh, as the road down the memory goes, uh, so too goes uh, that previous knowledge and awareness. And we have brand new generations who are, uh, you know, uh, interested and they uh, want to know this information, whether they know it or not, they want to know this information, they need to know this information. We don't want uh, this type of a, a concept or thought to just go away with the boomers and go away with, uh, you know, uh, any of the other uh, uh, um, elders in our society that were alive and aware when these things were happening. Uh, if, if I may make this type of an analogy, uh, take the vaccine 
Americans, for example, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, uh, when this whole COVID-19 uh, planned pandemic genuinely manufactured, uh, you know, a uh, super flu or uh, pfft, it's not even a super flu. It's just the flu. When this thing just b first broke out, uh, you know, we had uh, uh, hundreds, thousands of our elders pass away um, from this, uh, this, uh, from exposure to this and uh, comorbidities and everything like that involved. But the point of the matter is when this planned pandemic happened, a lot of our elders passed away. And what happens when our elders pass on, ladies and gentlemen, they happen to take with them knowledge and wisdom that we may lose if we had not retained it or if we had not learned about it or if we hadn't heard their stories and their experiences. And guess what we got now? We have a pandemic of, uh, you know, uh, fear-inspired, uh, youthful individuals that just don't seem to remember how vaccines are supposed to work. So there's my analogy there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the kids of today, uh, they think that vaccines are supposed to prevent you from dying and give you uh, mild symptoms. When we all know that vaccines were originally invented with the intention of eradicating whatever disease that vaccine was created for. Uh, so that wisdom goes along and uh, it goes away. Now, uh, drawing that back into tonight's topic about human trafficking and uh, child sex trafficking, um, I don't know about the, uh, the parent millennials nowadays, guys, like, uh, you know, I have my own suspicions about where a lot of this, uh, this, um, uh, sexual abuse comes from. And uh, a lot of that I think does come from, uh, you know, single home families or broken families, I would say, uh, now that's not to say that that is exclusive by any means, uh, but, uh, the abuse that, uh, children endure and that they either replicate or they, uh, uh, it, it haunts them for the rest of their life, you know, come from those types of families. And um, it's, uh, it, it again, is, is, is part of what uh, brings the overall, the overall problem to a head, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, well, I mean, uh, there's probably a lot more that I could say on that point, uh, but I will refrain uh, for the time being, um, because man, my, my head just spins when I think about some of the reasons why we have what we have nowadays and why we have uh, families that are so um, willing, you know, to, uh, to, to have their children exposed to, uh, to all of these crazy indoctrinating ideas that don't belong in the classrooms. And of course, I'm talking about uh, sexual education at the preschool level and uh, yeah, gender identities at the first grade level and, uh, you know, how to masturbate at the fifth grade level. And these are all stories that we've covered here at the Sea Report. And we see that uh, the teachers, uh, as long as well as the parents in this day and age, are so willing to allow their children to participate in these types of things. Uh, it just boggles my mind. And uh, that's, that's my generation, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, that is a scary thing indeed. Okay, so uh, uh, does anyone teach their children not to take candy from a stranger anymore. Um, you know, I think that that, as simple of an example as it is, uh, is something that just goes out the door, you know, because we have our phones and we have our internet and we have all these things. Uh, you know, we meet strangers every day online, don't we? So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know. 
I don't have children, so uh, I mean, I would have to go and I guess uh, analyze uh, some other people's families for that matter. But I ain't that kind of guy. That's kind of creepy, right? All right, guys. So we're gonna jump into tonight's story. Uh, first of all, I'm gonna say hello, hello, hello. We are live on FoxholePill.net, uh, Twitch, uh, Trovo, Clout Hub, and uh, D Live as well tonight, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, good evening over there, uh, Gained Birch uh, at Twitch. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, good stuff. I enjoyed the stream, dude. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate those comments, and uh, well, I hope you're. Uh, ready for tonight's show. Um, we got Relanon hanging out over at Foxhole. Good evening, sir, and thank you for the 170 gold pills. Xena, how, how good to see you tonight, ma'am. Welcome, welcome. Pilled by the rabbit. Good evening, sir. He says, there you are. Sorry I was late. Uh, oh, you were not late, sir. Uh, we started at 9 p.m. tonight. So that means I've been rattling on for about, well, 9.05. Okay, that means I've been rattling on for about 20, uh, 15 minutes already. Shonjo, good evening. Thank you for gifting the cookie. Glad to have you all with us. One, two, three, K SKG. Good evening. Good to see you, ma'am. Thank you for gifting the can. And uh, all right, uh, looks like we're good. And Sean, Joe, and Raylanon dropping some cookies. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. We'll see if Mr. C calls us Seananon again. <laughs> Shannon and uh, Rail Joe, right? <laughs> oh man, uh, Mez says normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. I like that. I think you, I think you dropped that line. That's a that's a good one liner to mic drop on Mez. Normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. <laughs> uh, let's see here. That's great stuff. Uh, and, uh, Zena says, Mr. C, forgive me if I leave. I don't think I can handle more heaviness right now. So, oh, Zena, don't you worry about it. Like, uh, you know, like I said, uh, this is, this is one of those topics and, uh, I'm sure, uh, Zena, that you are well versed in, uh, in the, this knowledge, uh, because, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of the members of the Patriot community or, you know, those who are mindful of their uh, social uh, society and stuff, uh, they, they already know this stuff. And I'm also sure you've probably heard the case that we'll be talking about tonight. Good evening, Tam Gural. Good to see you in the chat room. All right, guys, let's get started because what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start with the documentary. Um, and uh, once we get past that documentary, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about the case. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the agents who were involved in that case. Because incidentally enough, and uh, like I said, you guys, uh, you guys have heard about this case before. It's the most popular case. We're going to be talking about uh, the Boys Town, Nebraska, Franklin cover-up. Okay, uh, we're going to run the documentary uh, that was uh, pulled from the Discovery Channel in the 90s. Uh, so we're going to watch that. And then we're going to talk a bit more about uh, the agents and some other where uh, uh, some other wares that this case went. And uh, that was uh, not, I'm telling you guys going through the information on this particular case. There is so much information out there. 
and uh, the Franklin cover-up. Well, they call it the Franklin cover-up for one thing, but that was the Franklin Credit Union in Boys Town, Nebraska. Uh, I don't think it was really a cover-up of the Franklin Credit Union. Do you know what I mean? Like, this was a cover-up of, you know, a child sex operating, a child sex ring operating out of Boys Town, Nebraska. It just so happens that uh, the Franklin Bank, uh, you know, was involved with, uh, you know, their books and, and had accounts for them and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, but as I was digging more into this, uh, you see that there is this extensive web that shoots out of everything that was discovered in that, uh, that town in Nebraska, um, that, that goes so much further and deeper into, uh, into our government's involvement. Okay. And, uh, that's, all is not covered in the document. Mentioned, alluded to, yes, but it is not covered. So we're going to look at some of that stuff as we move along. And I know the last time, well, the first time that we had this topic um, up for discussion, uh, a lot of uh, the friends in the chat rooms had a lot of good uh, intel. Uh, they had a lot of good um, uh, knowledge about uh, some of the characters who were involved. So there are a lot of things to consider when I was going through a lot of this material. Uh, but like I said, that's why we'll do the documentary first and then we'll kind of do some offshoots from that. Uh, so that is where we are headed tonight, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just so you are aware. Um, but with that said, we'll jump into tonight's uh, report. Uh, like I said, we're not doing news tonight. Uh, I can give you one news flash in, the, uh, in regards to uh, the uh, Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Appropriate since, uh, you know, she's a human trafficker and a pederast. Uh, Judge, uh, Judge Allison Nathan has, uh, said that she is going to have a sentencing date scheduled for Ghislaine Maxwell on June 28th. So June 28th is when they are going to have the sentencing, uh, for Ghislaine Maxwell. Again, she faces up to 65 years in prison. Uh, so June 28th is a time to look forward to. Uh, however, with that said, uh, the judge has also not decided whether or not um, she is going to uh, call for a retrial in light of the information that um, one of the jurors uh, had possibly lied on his uh, juror survey. And, uh, well, once we figure that out, we'll know which way we're going to actually go with this case. Will it go to a mistrial retrial? Uh, will, uh, will the, um, will the, the conviction stand? Uh, will they accept the prosecution's, uh, prosecution's, uh, deal to, uh, to, uh, throw, toss out the, um, toss out the perjury charges, which I think that's a cop-out quite honestly, uh, toss out the perjury charges so that her conviction can stand. Uh, and again, that is, uh, that is, uh, team Comey over there on the prosecutor's team. Anyways, guys, so, uh, that, that's about a little bit of news for you guys before we, uh, we get headlong into this topic of, uh, we get headlong into this topic of, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Franklin, uh, scandal cover-up. Um, and, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. This looks like an interesting headline. Mark Burnovich, Attorney General, threatens to prosecute Soros-funded Secretary of Snakes, Katie Hobbs! Ooh la la! So I guess that means uh, Burnovich finally woke up! 
All right, guys. Well, it looks like we'll have something to talk about tomorrow. That's right. How come you guys didn't tell me that in the chat room? Come on. You guys had to have known. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, guys. I kid. I kid. Uh, so even though we are going to be talking about the Franklin scandal tonight and uh, we are going to be, uh, you know, really featuring uh, the uh, the human trafficking element of our society, uh, which, again, uh, needs much coverage, uh, we will start with a statement from President Trump. Okay, we had one statement from uh, from the president tonight, so let's go ahead and cover that real quick. It is a short statement, and uh, it says here, How come Biden picks a reporter off a list? In all of the cases, uh, in all cases, softball questions, and then reads the answer. I would never have been allowed to get away with that, nor would I have to. Well, yeah, I mean, if people can't see that, uh, I don't know what they can see. If people can't see that Biden gets softball questions and that he reads off of, uh, you know, whatever he's reading, teleprompter or notes, he's had notes before. He's even had uh, notebooks with uh, the pictures of the uh, pictures of the reporters in there. But, I, you know, honestly, I guess uh, I guess they probably provide that to all presidents just in case. Uh, but um yeah, if people can't see the softball questions, they probably cannot see the issue or the uh, or the existence of human trafficking, I would say. I would definitely say, you know, that statement from President Trump actually kind of coincides with tonight's uh, tonight's story about the Franklin scandal cover up. Like I said, uh, there were so many offshoots from that story, guys that um, there is even one that involves a reporter who is giving softball questions to uh, um, uh, to President uh, Bush. <laughs> uh, do you guys know about that one? I don't know if we'll have time to get into that, but uh, that case involved uh, one of the investigators that we'll be uh, talking about tonight. And man, oh man, let me tell you the rabbit holes that you could definitely go down on when that sounds, the phrasing of that was terrible. There are so many rabbit holes that you could trip into uh, whenever you're covering these topics, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what are you guys talking about over there in the chat room? Let's see real quick because uh, chat is moving. And uh, once we get to this uh, documentary going, I will definitely... Uh, Definitely um, uh, be hopping along into the chat with you guys. Have a great night, Zena. And uh, God bless. Thank you for stopping in and saying hello. Uh, let's see here. We had Tam Grell in the house. Shine the light on all the darkness so it can't hide in plain sight. Yes, Miss uh, 123SKG, that is what it's all about. Uh, we are in that time period right now, ladies and gentlemen. Light is being cast upon all shadows. WC Cranop is in the house. Good evening, WC. How are you doing, sir? Good to see you, my friend, and uh, glad you're with us. Um, 123SKG says, my friends are all excited about getting free testing kits. Oh, goodness. From the government. I've heard they are made in China. Hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're excited about it. Uh, they are still the old style that give all the false positives. You know, here's a good example of these tests and false positives. Not to get off topic before we get into this story tonight. Uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, he recently, uh, he recently uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Okay. 
Uh, in fact, the test that he was given uh, said that it was uh, higher than usual uh, as per, I guess, I don't know, whatever it is that they used to determine the strength or the, uh, the uh, veracity of the virus. But he was asymptomatic, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so he got a second opinion. And uh, the tests he took after that showed he was uh, negative, ladies and gentlemen. So, well, we'll see how that happens. False positives and all the like. Uh, that, is, uh, that is, I guess, something that uh, we should come to expect if we're paying attention to the news out and about and around. Because it is known that that is the case. All right. Uh, good evening, Deplora Laura, over there in Twitch. Good to see you, hun. Glad to have you with us. You're hanging out with, uh, with a couple of other uh, Twitchers out there. Uh, hope you guys enjoy the show. And uh, it's good to see you again, Laura, Deplora Laura. Good to see you again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. President has... Ha-ha! <laughs> yeah. Huh. Uh, please help wake up the sheep because the King of Kings is coming. Absolutely. Well, you know... Doing the best that I can, Mez. Uh, so glad you're covering this. Did a deep dive years ago. All right, Sonia JHC, good to hear and good to see you in the audience tonight. Uh, feel free to drop any tidbits or uh, nuggets of information that you might have on this topic. Like I said, uh, after the documentary, we're going to dive headlong into uh, some of the aftermath and uh, some of the uh, uh, individuals that uh, we'll hear about in the documentary. Mikey B. Bad 13, thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight and thank you for the can. Glad to have you with us, sir. Okay, guys, I think we're good there. How is uh, it's how is it they're still using oh the PCR? You guys are talking about the PCR test? All right, guys. So we have the Franklin cover up tonight. That is the topic. Now, before we jump into the uh, before we jump into the um, documentary, let's take a look at this uh, article, kind of a summation point for uh, tonight's story. And we'll go ahead and get that on there. Is the Franklin cover-up scandal of child sex trafficking in Boys Town, Nebraska still happening today? Asks this, uh, this uh, journal here. So uh, it says here, uh, in 1988, uh, the raid and closure of the Franklin Federal Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, revealed a child sex trafficking ring, mainly boys and later girls from Boys Town, Nebraska, that included prominent members of society and government officials as the perpetrators. Uh, the investigation into the credit union and its general manager, Larry King... Uh, and no, that's not the Larry King from the talk show host, uh, but uh, it does kind of make sense that they have someone else out there with that name. So, you know, when you do a search of Larry King, you're going to you're going to see the talk show host and you're not going to see Lawrence King, uh, uh, the uh, Republican uh, who was uh, really behind all of this. Um, let's see, it says here, uh, Larry King ended with the arrest and conviction of Larry King for a 40 million dollar fraud. Hmm. Despite multiple investigations into the credit union, Larry King and Boys Town, one of the greatest cover-ups was not only successful, but resulted in the accusations made and corroborated by several witnesses as nothing more than a hoax, leading to multiple conspiracy theories. A documentary created in 1993 by a film crew from Yorkshire Television in the UK went to Omaha, Nebraska to make a documentary about the alleged pedophile ring. Funding for the film was made by the Discovery Channel in the USA. The documentary was set to air in Ireland and the United Kingdom as part of the Yorkshire television broadcast First Tuesday. 
a U.S. broadcast would follow. The documentary uh, crew claims to have found a vast operation throughout the country, providing children to the wealthy and political establishment for molestation, drug trafficking, and blackmail. A year later, in 1994, the documentary Conspiracy of Silence was complete and ready to air in the United Kingdom, but the Discovery Channel withdrew support and reimbursed Yorkshire Television in uh, the half million it cost to make. And uh, I noticed we have a commercial over there at uh, Twitch, so we're going to pause it real quick, guys. And uh, again, if you're uh, joining us now live, thanks for uh, thanks for understanding the brief pause. And also, if you're on the podcast, howdy do. Uh, let's see what we got here. Sony JC says it's still happening. They just quit taking them to the White House. Uh, yeah, and they probably uh, relocated out of Nebraska as well. Wouldn't doubt that. Would not doubt that at all. Okay, uh, let's see here. Okay, we got about uh, 15 seconds. 15 seconds more on this commercial. Wow, man. And so, yeah, the, uh, I don't know this, this entire topic guys has been a pretty crazy one that, uh, you know, I've heard about these things, but I haven't, uh, and I obviously I've seen this, uh, seen this documentary before, but, uh, have not done a dive like this. Okay. All right. If you're joining us over at Twitch, don't worry guys. I saw a commercial was playing. I hope all the commercials play at the same time. Don't tell me now that uh, the commercials played at different times for different viewers. Uh-huh. Oh, you had no commercials? So you were watching us? Okay. There was a commercial on my end. I don't know what that was all about. God, can they not be uniform? Hmm. Anyways, all right. Well, we stopped reading. Uh, for any of you who did suffer a commercial, uh, let me go ahead and uh, get back into this. Okay, guys, here we go. Okay, it says, uh, a year later, 1994, the documentary Conspiracy of Silence was complete and ready to air in the United Kingdom, but the Discovery Channel withdrew support um, and reimbursed Yorkshire Television um, the half million it cost to make. The documentary remains unaired till this day. Over the years, the documentary has been leaked onto the web. The information in the story is what I gathered from the investigation done by the crew of Yorkshire and a book, The Franklin Cover-Up, written by John DeCamp, an attorney with intimate knowledge of the scandal and other research. So John DeCamp, uh, that name comes up a bit. After all, he was, uh, he was the attorney that had the main in, uh, uh, investigation into this and also as a representative, former representative of the United States of America. Um, so, uh, he's definitely involved. I've heard a lot of things about this man, um, as well as, uh, uh, one man by the name of Ted Gunderson. Um, uh, his name comes up a lot and, uh, it, it's rather interesting. Some of the things that you read about Ted Gunderson and John DeCamp, uh, such as they were CIA, uh, they were covering up uh, these stories. Um, and I'll be quite frank with you guys. At the head of the show, uh, I could not find stories or even uh, even in their own words. Uh, and I, I guess I would be speaking more of Gunderson here, where they were trying to cover up anything about what they had discovered. Now, were they possibly covering up something else? That is a possibility, uh, you know, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that in just a little bit, y'all. Uh, Boys Town. The documentary begins in Boys Town, Nebraska, a small town founded in 1917. 
by Father Edward Flanagan, Monsignor Robert P. Hupp, former executive director of Boys Town, is seen in an interview for the documentary saying Boys Town started to be a home for orphans after World War I, and since then society has changed and the problems of boys have changed, and so now it's a question of taking care of homeless, abandoned, neglected, abused boys, and now girls also. Okay. With cash reserves of $500 million, Boys Town was considered the richest square mile in the world. Today, Boys Town may still be the richest square mile in the USA, if not the world, according to their 2016 Form 990 tax return. Father Flanagan's Boys Home has a total net asset of over a billion dollars. Okay. Um, Franklin Federal Credit Union. The Franklin Federal Credit Union was located in Omaha, Nebraska. It was founded in 1968 by community activists with the goal of making credit available for businesses and individuals in the African-American community of North Omaha. Uh, by qualifying as a low-income credit union, it could sell certificates of deposit to non-members, which created and allowed the process of swindling millions. Larry King became its manager in 1970. December of 1988, the New York Times published a story about the scandal that offers more in regards to King's role in the local society and government when the author, William Robbins, reported. In 1972, he headed a national political organization, Black Democrats for George McGovern, but he gained greater prominence after he had switched parties a while later, serving for a time as vice chairman of the National Black Republican Council, an official affiliate of the Republican Party, and becoming a familiar figure on the Republican social scene. According to Noel Seltzer, a former executive for the credit union, stated in an interview for the documentary, Boys Town had quite a few accounts with the credit union. Those were considered very valuable accounts. They were handled exclusively by the bookkeeping department, but once on the average of a month, uh, but once on the average of once a month or once every two months, we always seemed to incorporate a person from Boys Town. On April 11th, 1988, the Franklin Federal Credit Union was raided by the FBI and King was arrested. Okay, and we'll stop right there so we can go ahead and get into uh, the, uh, the documentary, guys. So that's just a little bit of history on, uh, on uh, or I guess a kind of like um, a preface, if you will, a prologue to the documentary. Uh, so this way uh, we have a little bit of understanding on uh, where we're going with this and the premise of uh, what we're going to see in this film. Now, like I said, guys, uh, this is documentary. It's uh, comprised of interviews. Um, and, uh, you know, we're talking about firsthand witnesses and the likes. Uh, so there is some graphic language, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and, uh, and some graphic imagery. Uh, that can be derived from that language. So again, I'm just letting you guys know as a heads up, uh, there are some things that uh, they say that may be uncomfortable uh, to hear. Um, but again, um, the victims of uh, such crimes go through so much worse, ladies and gentlemen. And our awareness is most definitely part uh, of um, assisting that prevention. Um, all right, guys. So let me go ahead and get us uh, set up for this documentary, nice and pretty. And I want to make sure we got some good sound for you guys. So let me do that as well. I have this little uh, technical um, 
what would you, how would you call it? A technical type of uh, superstition, <laughs> a little ritual I go through to make sure you guys get ace sound. All right, guys. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to let it roll, y'all. Uh, here we go. This is uh, the conspiracy of silence about the Boys Town, Nebraska, Franklin cover-up. And, um, well, here we go, guys. A Republican from the Midwest, Lawrence E. King, is serving a 15-year prison sentence for a multi-million dollar fraud. But financial crime is only half the story. This is the true story of Lawrence King. It is the story of an evil at the heart of America, of a cover-up at the highest level. One man is attempting to uncover the full story. John DeCamp is among the most highly decorated Vietnam veterans. A former Republican state senator in Lincoln, Nebraska, he is now a lawyer fighting the legacy of Lawrence King's evil network. It's a web of intrigue that starts in our holy of holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, one of the most respected institutions in the United States. And spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C right up to the steps of the nation's capital, the steps of the White House, involves some of the most respected and powerful and richest businessmen in this United States of America. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing and drug couriers, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, but worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. World-famed Boys Town is in the news again. This Made famous by an Oscar-winning film, Boys Town, Nebraska is America's favorite children's charity. It was founded in 1917 by Father Edward Flanagan. spectacle in our social life is a neglected, unwanted, and unloved boy who has become a serious problem in our society. 
Boys Town was started to uh, be a home for orphans. That was after World War One, and uh, since then society has changed and the problems of boys have changed, and so now uh, it's a question of taking care of uh, homeless, uh, abandoned, neglected, uh, abused boys and now girls also. With cash reserves of $500 million, Boys Town is the richest square mile in the world. It has been granted the privileges of an incorporated town, a Catholic diocese, and a school district for 500 boys and girls. One third of its annual income is raised from public donations, solicited by begging letters and promotional videos. I'm Father Val Peter, the caretaker of Father Flanagan Stream and the executive director of Boys Town. Does Boys Town really exist, people ask me? You bet it does. Located in the heartland of America, Boys Town youth have come from many backgrounds and locales. As they graduate, they shall seek new adventures and head for different places. But always, they shall carry with them the spirit of Boys Town. If you'd like to help Boys Town, send your tax-deductible gift to Father Val Peter, Boys Town, Nebraska, 680. No. Boys Town, for me, was the first thing I ever heard of when you think of institutions that you respect. Believe it or not, I was there for a while when I was a young boy. Probably worldwide, there's no institution other than Boys Town that has done so much good for so many children over such a long period of time so successfully. When an institution like that gets contaminated, purposes of abusing children instead of protecting children, then you better, if you got any decency at all, uh, do something about it or, or at least get it cleared up. John DeCamp lays the blame for the contamination of Boys Town on the one-time leader of the National Black Republican Council, Larry King. Larry King was the fastest rising black star in the entire Republican Party of the United States during all of the 1980s. And he was also one of the most evil individuals in this country in terms of being a dealer of children, in terms of being a thief, 40 million that they documented he stole, and in terms of using and compromising and corrupting one after another politicians. The base for his network was a small people's bank in Omaha, Nebraska, the Franklin Federal Credit Union. Larry King was its general manager. Thank you. This is especially an exciting day for me. Mr. King was a very charismatic person. When he came to the credit union, he was brought in because the credit union was actually failing. He did everything to build the credit union. King courted the leaders of Omaha's wealthy business district. Banks, industry, and charities placed millions of dollars in King's hands. From 1979, Larry King developed close commercial ties to Boys Town, and Boys Town youngsters were sent to work for his companies. Boys Town had quite a few accounts at Franklin Credit Union. Those were considered very valuable accounts. They were handled exclusively by the bookkeeping department. But on the average of once a month or 
once every two months, we always seem to incorporate a person from Boys Town. King used Boys Town as a source of young boys for his business and for sex and drug orgies. Paul Banassi was a victim of King's abuse. He was also sent by King to lure Boys Town youngsters off campus. We used to just drive around and go up toward a home. That's when we used to do some of the uh, scavenger hunts of picking up some of the kids. You know, just kind of win their confidence, become friends with them for a while. Start inviting them to the parties. The kids were 10 years old or older. In 1986, King's plundering of Boys Town was reported by staff to the chief executive, Father Val Peter. Subsequent testimony proves that he carried out his own investigation, but that King's victims refused to talk. Nebraska has a very clear statute that child abuse allegations should be reported to authorities. They shouldn't be reported to the principal of a school, director of a facility. They should be reported directly to either Child Protective Services or law enforcement. An internal investigation uh, at Boys Town would have no status. I mean, in other words, that evidence collected maybe something that could augment, but it certainly could not take the place of an investigation, a criminal investigation. Could you understand why a very detailed report from a social worker employed at Boys Town, identifying children and identifying their alleged abusers, never saw the light of day, nothing happened with that? No, I couldn't understand that because as I know that had been, I wouldn't put up with that, but uh, is that something like that happened? I don't know. Well, in retrospect, I uh, regret having any association with uh, uh, Larry King. Uh, had I known it at the time, it would never have happened. Despite the investigation, Larry King remained free to feed his pedophilic parties with child victims. But in 1988, a routine review brought the Boys Town cases to the attention of Nebraska's State Foster Care Review Board. And the information presented to the Foster Care Review Board, either via the telephone reports, the personal reports, or the reports we reviewed, uh, Larry King's name was consistently present as someone that the youth were making allegations against. I mean, I turned that information over to authorities. and. Nothing happened. I would say we handed over at least a foot high um, amount of material. Generally speaking, uh, the allegations were ignored. Omaha police now accept that Larry King may have been abusing children. Good morning, Roberta. Good morning, Steve. But its most senior detective claims he never received any evidence. It is certainly possible that Mr. King was involved in illegal acts with children. If there was sufficient evidence of those types of allegations, he would have been prosecuted by the county attorney's office. For me, it was very clear that the case was not investigated and not pursued because of the alleged perpetrators. Those perpetrators named by the children formed a ring of rich and powerful pedophiles in Omaha. Men from industry, politics, the media, even the police. Besides Larry King, Ringleaders were department store billionaire Alan Bear, and the celebrity columnist of the Omaha World Herald newspaper, Peter Citron. With the judicial system apparently paralyzed, 
Larry King's political and business empire grew. He courted the Republican Party nationally and plundered Franklin's accounts to finance a luxury lifestyle of limousines, private planes, and palatial homes, three in Omaha and one in Washington, D.C. Franklin's records show he spent $10 million on jewelry, flowers, and private planes. And his lavish spending bought him a charmed life. Larry King was constantly heralded, cheered, applauded in the news media as the great businessman that's helping the poor people, the black community of Omaha. But King's extravagance attracted the attention of the Internal Revenue Service. As a result, on April the 11th, 1988, the Franklin Credit Union was raided and closed by the FBI. King was arrested and a federal investigation showed he'd stolen $40 million from Franklin. But the FBI's inquiries were secret and evidence of King's sex ring was quickly covered up. In November 1988, Nebraska's state government set up a parallel investigation into the Franklin financial collapse. A legislative committee was formed. Its chairman was the Republican head of Nebraska's banking committee, corn farmer and state senator Lawrence Schmidt. But the money trail led quickly to the original allegations of child abuse, and almost immediately anonymous threats began. I received a phone call on the floor of the legislature. The caller did not identify himself. But he said, Lauren, you do not want to have an investigation of the Franklin Federal Credit Union. And I asked who I was speaking to, and they said, that doesn't matter. Uh, but you shouldn't have that investigation. And I said, well, why not? He said, it will reach to the highest levels of the Republican Party. And we're both good Republicans. The night before we testified before the uh, legislative committee, I did receive a phone call at home that said, if you speak, you won't live to regret it. Undeterred, Schmidt's committee hired professional investigators Karen Ormiston and Gary Caradori. When we hired Mr. Caradori, uh, I was very specific to him. I said, uh, we do not want you to bring to the committee rumors, uh, innuendos, nothing that cannot be backed up with facts. I said, bring to the committee that which we can take to a prosecutor. On the streets of Omaha, Gary Caradori and Karen Ormiston found new victims of King's pedophile network. Every new youngster told the same stories as those from Boys Town, covered up three years earlier. They were telling us about prominent people in Omaha and elsewhere that were abusing children at, uh, at parties. The prominent citizens' uh, names um, that originally came up uh, were uh, of concern to me because I knew many of those individuals and uh, I very practically was shocked to have those names show up on the list. Ormiston and Caradori recorded their new witnesses on videotape. 
a victim of abuse since he was eight, Paul Bernassi was present at many of Larry King's sex parties. Who were some of these people that would come to these parties? Media personality Peter Citron procured some of his victims from Boys Town. The kids he liked were mainly around the age of uh, probably about 8 and 13. It was mainly uh, fondly and oral sex with him. He did have some anal sex, but he usually did that with the older kids. But Citron's abuse of Paul Bonassi involved ever more sadistic parties. He was over there and tied me up and Troy Bonner was 17 when he was introduced to the paedophile parties by Alan Bear. sex nasty you know I don't even know if you can call it sex you know and uh, take it any way he can get it pay for it he'd like to but if he had to take it by force he would Larry King was the same kind of sick fuck Alan Bear was except Larry King was more violent uh, more sure of himself you know I mean I would you know see him fuck a 10-year-old boy in the ass, you know, until he bled and, you know, just pull out and stop and, you know, push him down, you know, and, you know, and then go out and, you know, meet with decent people. King would also provide underage girls for abuse. Alicia Rowan was 15 when she attended her first party. I met some guys there that were from Boys and it was at that party that I met Larry King. At the time that I met Larry King, I did not know that he was Larry King. I, I had met him. It was the first time I'd ever met him. Alan Bear and Larry King frequently hosted the child sex parties in penthouse apartments at the Twin Towers luxury block. Um, a lot of it was... Um, me handcuffed with my hands behind my head um, and my feet tied and 
they're doing different things. Um, uh, sometimes there'd be a guy straddling over my face. Okay. Most of the time, Larry King took pictures quite a bit during that time. I know it's difficult. I don't know. Okay. And I think I could have said no. Okay. But I don't know. Okay. And you know, Alicia, you're a victim. And uh, at the young age, let's go off camera for a minute. We were appalled. Appalled. It was, it was incredible. It's incredible what these kids went through, I think. I was shocked when I walked in. There was a, a kid, I would say, about 15 years old, out in the middle of the room. Uh, one guy was standing in front of him. He was bent over, and the other guy was like reaching under him, playing with his nipples, while a guy whom Jeff told me was a police officer shoving beads up his rectum. The police officer was shoving beads up his rectum? Yes. Everything, I mean, from just, you know, touching to, uh, you know, fruit, squash, you know, huge squash, you know, that big around, you know, stuck into you, into your ass, you know. Uh, heat, heat things, hot things, you know, poked at you and stuck in you, you know. I got those scars on my arm one night at a party where Larry King was, and he had brought somebody, I don't clearly remember who it was, uh, you know, wanted to see how strong a man we were or something, you know, and have us push our arms together. And, and you push your arms together. Benny has, King has these same scars. And you push them tight together. And then you light cigarettes. And as soon as you get burning, you just drop them down between your arms and, you know, let it, let it burn. You know, and they made us stand there naked and touch each other by holding our arms together and burn cigarettes. For, you know, it's on film someplace. I mean, they filmed it burning you know and those of us that didn't like to be involved and didn't want to be involved were threatened okay. oh, so. and, and who would do the threatening remarks larry king um, think larry king personally did and i think he did and when they threatened you know that i can go find somebody that will kill you and it will kill your family. Um, you don't tell anybody. Larry King was also here. He came in and uh, we drank and did cocaine. I didn't do much. And he turned me on to it. Larry King did. He didn't like me because, you know, I would, I would get high on drugs, you know, and I would question him about, you know, how can you, you do that? I mean, once I asked him, you know, he wanted me to shit on him. You know, and I did, but gladly, you know, I mean, you know, I even said to him, you know, you stupid fucker, you know, I mean, I just, and you're paying me money, how can you get into that, you know, and I, I got, you know, beat up by it, I came home here a lot of times to beat the shit from, you know, misspeaking my tongue, so to speak, and, you know, just telling them how I felt sometimes. Drugs was a, a strong part of uh, how they got control of some of the kids, because that's what some of the kids were there to get, they would uh, 
do the sexual uh, acts and then be provided with uh, cocaine or uh, whatever type of drug they wanted. Heroin, you know, I don't, I don't know, but that was my, my drug of choice. You know, till this day, I remain an addict. You know. Larry King was, I would say, the center of transporting the children around the country. The, the airplanes were usually um, in his name, at least in his name. They were paid for by Larry King. So we met them in the Pasadena. Met who in Pasadena? We met Larry King was there. There was um, three boys that I had seen at one of the receptions at the French Cafe were there. And I was positive they were boys town boys. Almost positive. Um, they were there. You mean graduates in Boys Town? Well, not present. I think they were present because they were young. How would they get away for a long period? I have no idea. Okay. Boystown came up frequently during the investigation, but we found it very difficult to get information about Boystown. I was not able to find any information on my visit there, and uh, Mr. Caridori could not get information either. Four years on, Boystown remains unwilling to discuss its involvement with Larry King. We asked for an interview with Chief Executive Father Val Peter, but Boys Town's public affairs officer refused. I would uh, have to give you a flat no. I'm just going to tell you at this point that uh, we will not participate with you. We have no interest in talking to you folks. It's something that we don't even care to delve into. No, hi. Hi, is Father Val Peter available, please? Uh, you can check in his office. Thank you very much. We're here because we have to give Father Val Peter and Boys Town every opportunity to talk to us about the very serious allegations. Turn your recorder off. Please step outside. Why is it that Boys Town is unwilling to discuss your relationship with Larry King? We don't have a relationship. I'm afraid papers that we possess show that Boys Town had a relationship with Larry King. I just suggest you be very careful about what you report. Excuse me. Um, By the spring of 1989, so serious were the child abuse allegations before the Franklin Committee that its chairman, Lauren Schmidt, sought the advice of his lawyer, John DeCamp. He told Schmidt to turn over all the evidence to the FBI. Immediately, the videotaped testimony was leaked to a hostile media. The media immediately started discrediting the witnesses. They were, um, the witnesses came across in the media, in the Omaha World Herald, especially as the criminals. The last three victim witnesses were demolished by the press, particularly the Omaha World Herald. The paper never looked for information that would support any of the allegations. The whole purpose of the stories was to destroy any credibility that these youth may have. I've heard that people said that Gary Caridori coached me and uh, that he told me what to say, but the fact was I didn't meet Gary Caridori until way after I'd already talked to the Omaha police about the abuse and had named all the same people. And they didn't ask me very much about Larry King or, Alan, uh, or even uh, Alan Bear at all. 
they treated the allegations that I made about the, about the people who abused me almost like a joke. The information did not come our way. It was given, as I said, to the FBI and the Brass State Patrol. They conducted their own investigations of the information. The stories were of such uh, significance that the investigators first wanted to prove the accuracy of the stories. As they said about the investigation of the three, initially three, and then a fourth person were telling the stories, as the investigation developed, it became obvious to the investigators that the information was not accurate, that in fact, it was an entire conspiracy of, of allegations, none of which had any truth to them. I was very disappointed with the way uh, the FBI and law enforcement treated the victims. They, in fact, uh, turned them into the offenders, so to speak. And instead of taking the evidence that was delivered to them by the victims and interrogating the persons who the victims identified, uh, they seemed to bear down and try to get the victims to change their story. Troy Bonner was brought in for questioning by the FBI. The FBI's attitude was, you know, just no, that this, these kind of things don't happen. From the first interview when I went, you know, and realized they don't believe the fucking thing I'm saying, you know, I mean, they are, I mean, they, they were just appalled, but I realized what that that look in their eye was back then, it was fear. It was fear of, you know, I mean, I had witnessed, you know, firsthand things that would, you know, destroy this city, you know, people at the position, you know what I mean? It's not gonna be believed, believed, they said. It will not be believed. You will be found guilty of perjury. And you, I mean, they weren't telling me maybe, you know, they were saying, uh -uh, it's, you're not, it, there's no way. You're going, you go on with the story, you're going to jail. I mean, that was said to me direct. Just out of fear, I came to recant the story out of fear. Troy Bonner agreed to recant his videotaped testimony and state instead that his evidence had been invented. Next, the FBI used Troy in an attempt to trap Alicia Owen into recanting her evidence about Larry King's ring of powerful pedophiles. The phone call, recorded by the FBI on March the 9th, 1990, proves conclusive evidence for John DeCamp. It's a special agent, Michael F. Mott. The following will be a consensually recorded telephone call between Troy Bonner and Alicia Owen. Hello. Hi. Hey, what's going on? I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> talk to me. No, you talk to me. I don't understand what you're talking about. What are you talking about? That's what I'm asking. You're calling me why I'm why I'm lying? Yeah. You can talk to this whole thing, Alicia. You're full of shit. You need to tell me what's going on. You're full of shit. Hey, look. I have nobody listening to me. I'm listening to you, and I'm hoping you give me some fucking answers. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what to do. I'm not trying to play you. And I don't know how. Who you have listening to this phone call? You're being stupid, Alicia. I'm not going to go to jail for you. And that's what's going to happen. Why would you go to jail? Jail for telling the truth? No, jail for lying. What have you lied about? I haven't lied. Okay, but why are... Listen, shut up. Listen to me. You're not out here being talked to him every day. The pressure's kind of hard. You literally have to have bricks for brains to take on the FBI in this country.
And that's exactly what you'd have to do to do this properly. They now, in my opinion, in my investigation, are the architects of the cover-up. We asked the FBI for an interview about its investigation of the Franklin scandal. Larry Holmquist with the FBI here. We feel it would it would be inappropriate for us to comment. We worked this with the Omaha Police Department. We just don't feel it would be appropriate for us to make comments. As Gary Caradori and Karen Ormiston sought out new witnesses on the streets of Omaha, they found themselves under constant threat. Gary was threatened several times. His, his vehicles were tampered with. I would think whoever tampered with them, it was a scare tactic because it was so obvious that they were being tampered with. Gary got, he was, there was one piece of evidence I know he got that he was, that he even said he, he got one step ahead of him this time. He told us about this book. It was, it was like addresses, telephone numbers, names. He said if, if, they, uh, if they knew he had it, they'd kill him. On July the 11th, 1990, Gary Caradori and his eight-year-old son, AJ, were flying home from Chicago. They had watched the All-Stars baseball game, and Caradori had been pursuing new leads. Investigators from the National Transportation Safety Board are in Harold Cameron's cornfield, trying to determine what caused this private plane to crash, killing its two occupants. The bodies of Gary Caradori and eight-year-old AJ were found in the wreckage. National Transportation Safety Board investigators say wreckage from the crash is apparently strewn over a three-quarter to one-mile-long stretch in this field. The, the fact that the wreckage is scattered over a large area certainly demonstrates that it did break up in flight. The exact mechanism of breakup yet is still unknown. The federal investigation was never able to discover what tore the plane apart. There are things missing from the plane. His briefcase is missing. Um, again, we'll, we'll never know what all was missing because I don't, I don't know what he had with him. I don't know what he did in Chicago. He may have had information he was coming back with. Within 24 hours of the tragedy, FBI agents impounded all records of the investigation. Gary's widow, Sandy, is still unable to come to terms with her loss. As a mother, I don't want to ever think that somebody murdered my child, let alone my husband. But I think if you'd ever talk to any parent, be it mother or father, who's ever lost a child, I mean, the worst thing that you can think of is that somebody would want to murder a child. I really feel that somebody killed my brother, and uh, inside me, I, I know that somebody killed my brother. If somebody could help us out somewhere, somebody knows something, and uh, may uh, may God help those who did that to him and his family. Gary Caradori's death pricked Troy Bonner's conscience. He promised Sandy that he would recant his recantation, 
and tell the truth. I set the record straight. I was, you know, going to do it. Ah, uh, and would, you know, the truth would come out, you know, and somebody would be held accountable for his death. And then at the funeral, I had seen, you know, FBI guys, you know, and they, they looked at me. You know, I was supposed to meet Senator Obetz and Schmidt for lunch after the funeral. And, uh, you know, that's when I decided, I told my mom, you know, we're not going to do the lunch. We're going to hightail it out of Lincoln now. The effect of Gary's crash on the investigation, I think, in effect, put an end to any anybody else coming forward with sensitive information like this. That's when I was finished, because I figured out if they murdered Gary and his son, there was nothing that would stop him. There was no, there was no piece of paper, there was nothing we could come up with that was going to get anything done. Under pressure from the FBI, Troy Bonner agreed to tell a Douglas County grand jury investigating Larry King that he and Alicia Rowan had concocted the entire child abuse story on payment of a $500 bond. Troy Bonner was to be the star witness against Alicia Rowan, but he grew uneasy about maintaining what he claims were the lies fed to him by the FBI. But when his brother Sean died in an inexplicable gun accident, Troy and his family were convinced they'd been sent a warning message. You know, and they, they killed him just flat out, right? Somehow, professionally, made something happen, you know, to shut me up. The purpose of Sean's death? to instill fear and worked. Do I feel guilty about my brother? Yes, I do. That's that's where all this is coming from. This is where the energy that's where the energy is coming from that I'm getting to do this. It's for him because I mean it did should have been me there instead of him. Really. I mean I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but I mean he he was brilliant and, and, you know, innocent. You know, it, it should have been me. I mean, he had so much to give. I've taken so much. You know, it should have been the other way around. I, I can explain to you what it feels like to lose a child. But when you see the pain your kids have because of that, it's much worse. I can't do anything for him. I can't take that pain away from him. Lauren Schmidt's legislative committee issued a report denouncing the grand jury. Two months later, it was disbanded, leaving Schmidt a broken man. The message was now lost on most politicians in Nebraska. I think the message that was delivered was if any legislative committee ever tries to conduct a thorough investigation again, the same thing will happen. It has shaken my faith in the institutions of government. I used to be a firm believer that that uh, system would work, and uh, that people who did things wrong would be punished. And uh, we discovered uh, victims who 
claimed to have been abused and who the grand jury acknowledged had been abused. But they did not try to find out who had abused those individuals. Instead, um, they convicted Alicia Owen of perjury. Indefensible from my point of view. In July 1991, Alicia Owen was convicted of perjury. Her sentence was between nine and 25 years. I can't find a case in the history of this country where some kid got sentenced to 25 or 30 years in prison for something like this. If you were going to pick a, a what I call a tell sign, something that says something species about the whole thing, it was in the sentencing itself. For some reason, they had to send a signal to every kid who was a potential witness. My opinion again. A signal so loud and clear, if you dare to come forward, if you dare to talk, watch what happens. Three months later, Larry King was jailed for the $40 million fraud. He was given a 15-year sentence, 10 years less than Alicia Owen. John DeCamp is now the only man fighting to help Larry King's victims. He's become the lawyer for Paul Bonassi and Alicia Owen. I live in Nebraska. Hell, I was born here, raised here. I have four kids growing up here. Like it or not, it, it's my heritage, you know? Well, if it's a dirty cesspool that I got to live in or look back on that I left, that ain't good. The real cost, if I were going to say to my family, has been the fear and intimidation that's put in some of the kids. A couple of the kids are really, really frightened and uh, uh, really had some sleeping problems over, you know, here, this or that. So that, that's been the real concern I've had. In the face of mysterious threats, John has turned for advice to his friend and one-time boss, former head of the CIA, Bill Colby. Uh, old Bill Colby told me better than anything. The, the one thing that uh, the bad people can't afford is publicity and, and knocking you off right now or doing something obvious to, to one of your kids uh, would bring them more trouble than it's worth. I said, you, you have to consider the possibility of some danger to not only your reputation, but to your person. I mean, there are... People do react rather violently to some kinds of charges, or particularly if they're true, there's more apt to be a negative reaction than if they're false. If they're false charges, then they can be reacted to in a normal way, a libel suit or whatever. But uh, a true, if there's truth in it, there can be a danger in that situation. We've seen that happen in other cases. John DeCamp has arranged to meet Troy Bonner, the young man he sees as the key to the cover-up. He's in great danger. The reason is he carries the secret, so to speak. He served his purpose for the FBI and others by committing the lies that put the seal on the cover-up. His greatest safety probably lies in doing exactly what he knows he should do, that is exposing the whole thing, taking one final last chance and telling the truth. Uh, my fears are that, you know, I'm not going to be believed again. It's just, you know, going to be a whole other kind of exploitation like it was last time. You know, and afraid that that's going to happen. I'd end up dead. Our loved one might end up dead again. I want this to go forward and, and have something done so that all those other kids who a lot worse, more worse things have happened to can come forward and see that action can be taken.
because there are a lot of other kids out there that, you know, things happen to them that, you know, a lot worse than than happened to me. You have to, if you want to protect yourself and your life and your family's life, both now and particularly in the future, is to use the institutions of government that have been set up to protect you and make them work. That means you go into federal court, you go after the people that have done this cover-up, and you expose it so there's no longer any percentage on their part in eliminating you because the secret's out. That's why we're here today, to, 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 to let it out. I have no doubt that he's now telling the truth, number one, and number two, that he originally told the truth. Potentially, they could decide to charge him with perjury because now he is telling that they forced me to lie. I did lie at Alicia's trial. I did lie before the grand jury. I did it because the authorities were forcing me to do it and I was scared for my family. My brother had been killed when I, when I tried to back out the one time. Potentially, they could charge him with perjury this time. Alicia Rowan is out of prison and on bail while the camp appeals against her perjury conviction. As he prepares for a court hearing, new evidence of the cover-up emerges. And once again, it involves Troy Bonner's evidence. The tapes that were shown to the grand jury had been edited. Everything that matched Troy's statement was shown. That matched mine I know it's was edited reason. out. And I think maybe one of the things we want to do is show the judge specifically how where these, you know, little five-minute segments of, look, this tape says this, and then show him it isn't in this tape, and this is the tape the grand jury saw. I'm going to attempt to get these tapes, and we'll see what happens next. But to obtain the evidence, DeCamp must approach some of the very officials he believes were involved in the cover-up, the county attorney's office, which ran the grand jury. In the good old Alicia Olin case, 127-194, I'm trying to get the evidence, the tapes and the transcripts of Troy and Danny, Troy, uh, Troy Bonick. It might be downstairs. Don't get that up here, Yeah. I think there's two tapes. There should be, as I understand, and the transcript of them. But if I can get them, uh, I can start reviewing and figure out maybe a little, a little bit on what's happening on some things. Up at the county attorneys, they have all the bills up there. Oh. Robert, let me guess, Robert Siegler has them. Robert Siegler is the prosecuting attorney fighting to send Alicia Owen back to prison. After lengthy negotiations, the camp emerges with the tapes the grand jury never saw. I'm up with uh, $4,000, about $4,000 in cocaine. Okay, and what airline? I flew out of America. Okay, and uh, did you go direct? No, I didn't stop over in No, I just stopped over in Dallas for a bit. So you went from where to where to where? I went from Omaha to Dallas for a bit, uh, like an hour, and then uh, a big, big plane from uh, Dallas to Los Angeles. Right. Did anybody go with you? Alicia Owen. If this indeed were left out of the grand jury proceedings, then I am totally shocked and, and angry beyond words. Here it is, so to speak, the smoking gun that they could go out and verify, the corroboration. In other words, the linkage to King that was denied. 
cover-up. Organized, planned, deliberate cover-up. The courthouse, Wahoo, Nebraska. The hearings begin. Alicia Owen is ready to testify. So too is Paul Bonassi. But there is no sign of Troy Bonner. DeCamp discovers that Robert Siegler has sent the young man a threatening subpoena. Fearing arrest for perjury, Troy has gone into hiding. In court, the camp successfully pleads for another adjournment. The county attorney's office begins to search for Troy Bonner. But Robert Siegler won't say why. I'll ask you whether you're about to charge Troy Bonner with perjury. Oh, no. Why isn't the wonder coming, Mr. Siegler? You're a public official, aren't you? Mr. Siegler, is it true you are about to charge Troy Bonner with perjury? No, Mr. Siegler, if you do not charge Troy Bonner with perjury, does that mean you accept what he's saying is true? No, Why are you trying to have Troy Bonner summoned to this hearing, Mr. Siegler? No, why no comment, Mr. Siegler? No comment. Every victim witness who stepped forward in any way or even was a potential witness that somebody heard about has either been killed, put in jail under some theory or other, terrified or run out of the state, discredited. Every perpetrator, every perpetrator, even the convicted ones, have been treated as conquering heroes. Obviously, the FBI was protecting something a lot more significant than a bunch of old pedophiles having proper relations with little boys. They were protecting something a lot more significant than a bunch of drug peddlers. They were protecting, in my opinion, they were protecting some very prominent politicians, some very powerful and wealthy individuals associated with those politicians and the political system up to and including the highest uh, political people in this entire country. In search of answers, John DeCamp goes to Washington to investigate Larry King's powerful connections in the nation's capital. Paul Bonassi has come too. Larry King threw child sex parties at his $5,000 a month Washington house. Paul Bonassi was one of the victims. Larry King's house down in Washington, D.C. Was, was, was a nice house. It was on what they, I guess, I believe it was Embassy Row because that's what they kept uh, talking about. There were a lot of flags from different countries when you drove around in the area. So tell me, Paul, how often did you come here? 
was about 14, about 1981. And at first it was about three or four times the first year. After that, it was about once a month after 81. And who brought you here? Larry King brought me here. And this was the actual house for you? Yes. And what, you were used for sex then? Yes. Some of the parties, when they started off, were straight political type parties with no sex. And then when some of the men had left, some of the politicians had left, the ones that had planned, they had planned on uh, engaging in some type of sexual activity, uh, that would come after the party. Some of the kids would be held downstairs in some of the rooms where if they acted up or if they started freaking out because of the drugs that they were on, they'd put them in a room that they couldn't get out of and they'd lock them in. Were there drugs at these parties? Yes. What kind of drugs? Anything you wanted, cocaine, uh, heroin, speedballs. You're telling uh, me those speed. things were at these parties where you had Larry King and prominent politicians? Yes. Were they readily available to anybody at the party? They, at the after parties, they were readily available for anybody. Beforehand, they did it more uh, upstairs than they did anywhere else, and it was kind of in the back rooms. Were any attempts ever made that you know of to... Uh, to expose this situation. As far as I know, nothing's ever been done. And most of the people that were in there had already been compromised. King's partner in sex crime was powerful Washington lobbyist Craig Spence. He took youngsters like Benassi on midnight tours of the White House. So you were in the White House then? Yes. And how, how did you gain access? Well, I came down with uh, Larry King, but Craig Spence was the one that arranged the trip for us. And it was kind of a, a gift for our services that we were doing. How many times were you on this kind of a trip? I came to it on two times. Two times. And were you used for sex on those occasions? None until after we left. After you left the White House? Yes. What it's, time of night? It was usually around uh, midnight. I mean, it was just kind of weird being in the White House at that time of the night, getting to go into places that the guy was telling us that uh, nobody gets to go to. I mean, we've seen, I've seen rooms in there that uh, I'd never even heard about. Craig Spence and Larry King had a couple of groups. One was called Bodies by God, and they had the Cowboys. And there was another group that was started by Larry King, which was called the Golden Boys, which was kids that were usually under the age of approximately 10. On the trail of Craig Spence, DeCamp finds the investigative reporter who exposed Spence's callboy network, Paul Rodriguez of the Washington Times. We had uh, uncovered a, a series of allegations from some miners and it led me to a callboy operation here in Washington. It sure fits with, you know, this boy Paul Benassi. He tells a tale of being brought to the to the, the White House on occasion, kind of as a reward for the kid. Craig Spence is dead. He committed suicide. He had advanced stages of AIDS. He was an AIDS carrier and he killed himself. This was the thing that always bothered me. They claimed it was the largest uh, male prostitution ring in the city that they've ever, ever had uncovered. It was a million dollars a year minimum. Yeah. And yet they only prosecuted the operator, uh, Henry Benson, and three of his lieutenants, as it were. Mm -hmm. They never went after any of the Johns or the clients. This operation, which was, again, quite large, claimed to have clients that ran from the White House to the Capitol Hill to the, to the churches.
in the, within the media. Um, and that's and precisely a lot of, what Paul describes as the people he was. And a lot of the stuff led there, but we couldn't quite nail it in all cases because, again, to accuse someone of high yeah. stature, you've got to be very careful. I understand. We were able to do it through the, uh, the mother loads which provided us credit card receipts and canceled checks and then um, lists of the clients. The prosecutors knew all this stuff. There was approximately 20,000 pieces of doc or 20,000 documents yes. that they had. They sealed the entire record when they found out I was accessing it. They required consent agreements from all the lawyers, all the clients, all the relatives of all the clients, all the hookers, including the clients themselves. Which means you can never gain access. They sealed them by court order. And we have tried, to, we've attempted on several occasions to unseal that, and we've been told it will be a cold day in hell before those records ever get unsealed. And it makes me wonder what's in those records. The Attorney General is now involved. Bill Colby has passed a camp's evidence to a senior lawyer in the Justice Department. He did say that the Attorney General's office would be very sensitive to any charges of abuse of children, that this was a matter of considerable priority to the department, that this sort of thing not take place, and that they would assign an officer to look into the case. For John DeCamp, the story of Larry King's corrupt empire holds a dire warning for America. If you can control about three or four key elements, you can totally own a state. You can make right wrong. You can make truth falsehood, falsehood truth. If you control the media, if you control the Justice Department, if you control the police, you own the system. It's beyond belief that arguably the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States, in the form of Richard Nixon, could not prevent the investigation of Watergate, or that President Reagan could not prevent the investigation of Iran-Contra, and yet somehow this group of unnamed, unknown, anonymous individuals in Omaha, Nebraska have such power they can control and protect all of these people from being investigated. Those allegations are ridiculous. Well, first of all, Nixon did cover up Watergate, number one. Bush did cover up Iran-Contra, at least officially. And Omaha has successfully covered up this situation. In each case, it was the press that exposed the problem. It wasn't institutions of government. They had been corrupted. They had been compromised. They were the ones doing the cover-up. The Justice Department, acting through FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Omaha, emerges from the record of the Franklin investigation, not so much as a party to the cover-up, but as its coordinator. Rigging grand juries, harassment of witnesses, incitement to perjury, and tampering with evidence. Federal personnel were seen to apply all those techniques in the Franklin case.
The C Report is 100% listener supported. If you enjoy the broadcasting that we bring to you with the C Report and other shows on this podcasting platform, we ask that listeners lend their support. Become a monthly donor when you go to anchor.fm slash the C Report slash support or click on the support button over there at the anchor.fm slash the C Report website where you can help sustain future episodes of the C Report and other broadcasting on this podcast station. Every bit helps, ladies and gentlemen. And as always, I thank you for your support. Alrighty, guys. Woo! Now that was a heavy, heavy, heavy documentary, y'all. Uh, I'm sure you all would agree with that, and uh, I know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people in our audience have seen that before. Uh, but as I was saying too, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people out there that uh, may not have ever heard about the Franklin scandal. And again, I mean, I I don't know why they call it the Franklin cover-up. Is it because in the end? Larry King was only charged with what uh laundering money and stealing money and all that stuff. Uh so it's the they covered up for no he got he got arrested for that, didn't he? So I don't I don't know why they chose to call it the Franklin scandal. I mean, it was the uh the boy well, the Boys Town scandal, the Boys Town cover up. Um I mean, I guess that I mean, I guess it makes sense that there's kind of like I wouldn't say misdirection. Because uh, when we're talking about John DeCamp, who wrote the book, uh, The Franklin Cover-Up, and uh, we're talking about Ted L. Gunderson, who actually is not directly involved with this case, uh, Ted Gunderson actually got involved with it uh, a little later. We're talking about more towards the 90s, when DeCamp had, uh, you know, uh, told him about this um this uh this case and this situation and uh sent him a copy of the video uh that we just watched the documentary that we just watched uh so you might be wondering why do i keep on bringing up ted gunderson okay so anyhow so um as i was saying uh in, in the case of like john DeCamp, uh you know and ted gunderson particularly now ted gunderson uh, is the uh, the investigator that uh, that we found out about the finders from, and uh, he was involved in a lot of cases that had to do with that type of activity. Now um, he was uh, he was an FBI agent uh, at a point, and um, he um, let me see if I can uh, get you like something proper on him. Um. But but Ted Gunderson and both John DeCamp, uh, the man who wrote this book and was, uh, the, I guess, the lead lawyer investigator into this entire uh, Franklin case, um, he uh, he's he's being called, you know, things like, uh, you know, um, a, a co-intel op uh, type of guy. Uh, uh, he was covering up for other things. Now, as far as Ted Gunderson, it says that uh, he was a Federal Bureau of Investigation special agent in charge and head of the Los Angeles FBI, an American author, and they call him a conspiracy theorist. Uh, some of his FBI case work included the death of Marilyn Monroe and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
Now, uh, if you consider the assassination of John F. Kennedy, yeah, maybe I could see where they would say that he was, uh, he was a, uh, you know, a cover artist, so to speak, for uh, these three-letter agencies. Um, they say that they worked for the FBI, and they say that uh, they were covering for uh, the Vatican, and uh, they were covering for uh, um, uh, higher-ups. So... Uh, but the thing about it is, uh, as I was going through a lot of this information and reading a whole bunch of articles, um, I was uh, I was finding more and more and more um, uh, information written by Gunderson himself um, that was exposing all of this information, was exposing uh, satanic ritual, was exposing... Uh, uh, um, uh, sex trafficking rings and the involvement of the government. Uh, they call them a whistleblower. Um, and so I kind of think that perhaps uh, people are uh, trying to smear his name. Um, and we'll go through some of this stuff now that we've seen that documentary. And uh, we're kind of, uh, you know, uh, we recall now uh, just exactly what all was going on there. Now, I mean, the, the information that is given here, again, is so heinous. It, it is so uh, despicable, it's abhorrent uh, to think that uh, there are people out there that actually do this stuff, um, that are into these things. Like when they're talking about some of the, some of the instances that some of these children went through. Um, but, you know, again, like we're saying here, as, as this is a National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, uh, and I definitely put awareness in that uh, umbrella of prevention. Um, uh, we have to look at more than just, uh, you know, signs of human trafficking. Um, like I said, I've seen, I've been personally seen and been exposed to some stuff like this, but not on this scale, though, uh, when we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, clandestine flights uh, to D.C., um, you know, involvements with the sheriff or politicians or uh, other heads of the uh, of the city or the town um, and organizations a much smaller level uh, things I've personally experienced in my life um, uh, but this stuff guys uh, it, it gets right down to uh, the core of what is really poisoning our society you know and uh, what is really uh, what is really also poisoning uh, the spirit and the soul of this world and planet. And we, I mean, yeah, if you want to get into a theological kind of thing, yeah, we know, uh, we know who, who rules the world. Right. Uh, and so one would think that makes sense, but to people like us, uh, to people like us out there watching, uh, information like this, it doesn't make sense. We don't understand how or why people could do such things. Uh, and at the root of all this, we're seeing what uh, a love for money and power, and of course a perverse uh, sense of um, a perverse sense of uh, pleasure. I mean, I don't, I, I, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this stuff, to be quite honest with y'all. And um, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about the Franklin cover-up and uh, some of the individuals that we saw in this now. Let me just uh, verify this real quick, because I did not look this up. 
But you know, this happened in the, the this uh, this uh, documentary and all of this story uh, was kind of set up in uh, the late 1980s. Um, but as far as the cases and the trials uh, and some of the victims uh, go, and even even people like Larry King go, uh, they were all um, they were all still active in the newspapers in the media, though it was more hush, you know. Um, uh, uh, into the 2000s, guys. Like, they were having some trials in 2000, uh, 2003 as well, involving the Franklin cover-up, the Boys Town cover-up. You know, to be frank, I think the reason why, and this might not be John DeCamp's reasoning on why he titled the book The Franklin Cover-Up, but uh, they, they don't want to spoil the good name of Boys Town, okay? Like they said, it's the richest, what, acre or in the in the world. Like, it's valued at over a billion dollars, you know, so it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, if things are still going on there. And to be quite honest with you, um, I found headlines and stories that were talking about um, new cases of child abuse coming out of Boys Town, Nebraska, as uh, recent as 2004 and the mid 2000s. Um, I don't I, I don't have those articles on my uh, on my search here at the moment. But, you know, that's something else that I think is worth exploring. Um, uh, so uh, John DeCamp, uh, who wrote the book and who was also uh, the lead investigator, the former senator for the state of Nebraska, and also uh, he was the attorney for many of these victims. Uh, as it turns out, he, he passed away in 2017, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he died at the age of 76. Um, and let's see if we have a reason for it. Uh, John DeCamp. Because Ted Gunderson, he is, he is, he is, he has passed away as well. Um, uh, Ted Gunderson, uh, Sonia GHC had mentioned there also, um, uh, he, uh, he is, he is said on searches to have died of kidney failure. He is said to have died of cancer, uh, but there's also reason to believe that he died of poisoning and he had been, uh, he had been poisoned previously, uh, prior to his death at, at a point, And, uh, we'll, we can talk about that in a minute, uh, by arsenic. So I, th I think they said they found arsenic in his blood, in his body. Um, so let's see here. Man, John DeCamp, Columbine shooters used by law enforcement. Um, so these guys were all about kind of exposing what was going on within our government. Uh, let's see here. I just want to give you guys, and also for myself, to learn uh, the reason for his death. Let me see if this article says what it is, and then we can go on from there. Uh, John DeCamp has passed. May he finally find relief from years of excruciating pain um, from a back injury suffered in Vietnam. Uh, it says here, one of the brightest men I have known, his cognitive abilities deteriorate, deteriorated after a head-on car collision in 2011. He also reportedly suffered from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and resided in a VA hospital for his last two years. So uh, that would be uh, where we uh, see John DeCamp's uh, uh, meeting his end. 
And again, this is, this is the man who wrote the Franklin cover-up and uh, who was first in on this uh, documentary and then uh, did an investigation into it, as we learned. So there we go. That's a little bit about John DeCamp. Now, uh, let me see what I have over here. Okay, so uh, we're going to switch gears from John DeCamp and the Franklin cover-up to Ted Gunderson, okay? And as it was stated here, now that's Ted Gunderson there on the screen. As it was stated here, Ted Gunderson, he actually received a copy of this documentary from John DeCamp. Now, what I will say about Ted Gunderson before we get into uh, the rest of this data is that along with uh, people saying that um, uh, Ted Gunderson was a CIA operative and he was a co-intelpro uh, agent and that he was actually covering for the Vatican uh, and their, um, their bouts of sexual abuse and how widespread it was, um, as well as uh, covering for large uh, swaths of satanic uh, activity within the Vatican and within the government. Um, they also say that he was there to uh, clean up and uh, that he was responsible for finding and killing the victims of the, um, of the uh, Franklin cover-up. And there was one other story that I had uh, come across that I'd never heard about. Um, and let me see if uh, I still have that note here. It might actually be up here. And uh, let me see if I have that note here. See, all of these tabs I have are just on this, and it's not even all of it. Uh, I've got more on other windows. Um, uh, Operation Brownstone. Uh, I don't know if any of you all have heard about Operation Brownstone. I've never heard of it uh, until I was doing this, uh, a kind of this search and this dig. Um, and I was right about to get into it, but I needed to get, uh, get done with uh, uh, what we were going to present tonight uh, on the show. But just real quick on Operation Brownstone... Uh, pedophilia and brownstoning, uh, origin of the term Operation Brownstone. Brownstone is a brown Triassic Jurassic sandstone, which was once a popular building material. Uh, the term is also used in the United States to refer to a townhouse clad in this material. Is the federal Epstein bust a brownstone operation? George Bush, pedophile sex ring and blackmail Congress. Um, George H.W. Bush is a known evil pedophile who ran congressional blackmail child sex ring during the 1980s known as Operation Brownstone and Operation Brown Star, and later to become known as the Finders or the Franklin Cover-Up. Okay, well, I guess that, uh, I guess that uh, takes care of that. So uh, what John DeCamp calls um, um, the Franklin Cover-Up and what uh, Ted Gunderson calls the Finders is actually what I guess uh, the CIA or whomever calls Operation Brownstone. Uh, I'm going to look more into that, though, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because like I said, I'd never heard about it before, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more information in that regard. So, so I'd never heard about that, guys. I don't know if you guys had, but I had never heard about that. Um, let's see here. Where are we at? What do I got here? Okay, there's Gunderson. Okay, so uh, let me pull this uh, article up here. Uh, so what we're going to look at right now is actually a document that was written by Ted Gunderson. 
and like I said, Gunderson uh, was uh, informed about uh, this uh, this um, case over in um, uh, Boys Town, New Mexico, by John DeCamp, and John DeCamp uh, gave him a copy of the documentary um, and kept him informed about the progress in his investigation. And so uh, I'm going to share with you uh, this document written by Gunderson. And what this document talks about, uh, it talks about uh, some of the uh, aftermath of the case. Uh, It talks about uh, what some of the victims went through. It talks about some of the trials that uh, they had uh, on behalf of the victims. Uh, It talks about how uh, it had been called um, a, a grand hoax. Uh, it talks about how uh, some of the victims who came forward were actually uh, indicted and jailed under perjury. It talks about uh, uh, the death of some of the individuals who were involved in investigating the case. So it's kind of like a little bit of a wrap up on the Franklin case and where it left off. I know the end of the video mentioned some of that stuff. But again, that video came out in 1993, 94. And these documents take us up to like 2000 ish, 2003, when uh, they were still um, uh, having, you know, hearings on behalf of some of the victims. Uh, it also talks a little bit about what happened to Larry King. Um, <laughs> it is uh, it is quite an interesting uh, interesting thing, guys. Uh, real quick in the chat room, um, Doctor Dave Janda is how I found out about Operation Brownstone. Says uh, Sonia JHC, and I might believe that if not for Mister Gosh. Uh, might believe what, ma'am? Um, are we talking about him being like a, a co-intel? Um, uh, agent, let's see here. The whole state government and media covered this up. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're, your honest opinion, ma'am, and your honest fact, uh, just <laughs> because I mean, uh, they did, I mean, everything was covered up, um, you know, and I bet you, like I stated earlier in the, uh, I stated earlier in the, uh, in the chat room there that, um, uh, they probably they probably invested and uh, looked into having people like you know uh, um, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine uh, Maxwell uh, so that they could run the operations. That way, uh, the government and its agencies could have a degree of separation from the operations. Uh, never mind, never mind. Uh, you know uh, the the receipts and the the flight the flight patterns and the paper trails, but at least they wouldn't be charged with running the operation. So it seems like the finders was a case where they started to kind of map out what they were doing and how they were going to do it and how they could get away with it. But more importantly, it seems like the case of the finders had to do specifically with the use of MK ultra. And uh, when we did the finders, which was the last episode where we covered this topic, um, I believe it was uh, Mermaid Miss K had actually dropped some links in the chat room that I really wish that I had had prior to the show because there was a lot more information in some of uh, she she sent me like a, a decoder's blog about the entire uh, story and the, I mean it really went to support uh, the idea that it was uh, MK Ultra operation applications and how to use that in uh, an, an operation like uh, uh, human trafficking. 
And, uh, and then this, the Franklin cover-up, the Boys Town scandal, was just basically in your face, uh, the operation of uh, child trafficking, human trafficking, but also not just the trafficking, but how they got them to the power structures, how they got them to the politicians, how they got them to the presidents, how they got them to the, the top businessmen, and how they started to uh, um, capitalize on that activity is kind of what that seems like to me. And that is just, uh, you know, an amateur assessment um, about uh, what that looks like standing from, you know, a 20,000 foot view uh, and with fresh eyes. Um, but yeah, so uh, there's that. Okay, and let's see what else we got here going on. Okay, so uh, let's switch over to talking about Ted Gunderson. Now, Ted Gunderson, like I said, he worked for the FBI. He handled like uh, pretty important cases. And then he uh, started his own um, investigative firm. And uh, he, uh, he delved into a lot of what was happening in regards to uh, the involvement of uh, agencies, particularly the FBI uh, and the government. So uh, let's check this out right here. Now, this is a document written by uh, Ted Gunderson. And I will absolutely expand that for you guys. Now, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Let me get that on there. Uh, so this is Russell Nelson. Will he be killed in Oregon or will he be allowed to document corruption at the highest levels of government? So Russell Nelson, again, uh, he was one of the victims. He was a key uh, witness in this uh, entire uh, operation. Uh, now, the subtext here says evidence of corruption linking the FBI, CIA, some top political figures, the Franklin case, missing children, including kidnap victim Johnny Gosh. And uh, you mentioned Gosh in there, uh, uh, Sonia GHC, satanic abuse, CIA, MK Ultra, mind control, Iran Contra and a new arrest and new arrests of possible American terrorists in Mexico. So we're not we're, we're not going to focus too much on the Iran Contra thing and these arrests in Mexico or the MK Ultra thing. Uh, there is uh, there's actually a pretty good mentioning in here about the Johnny Gosh um, case, uh, but we're gonna kind of uh, we're gonna kind of not focus on that one tonight. We could probably do it another night, or maybe we can do it in the dark. Um, because that one was a kidnapping and there were other things that were going on with that uh, that are speculative that I think would be worthwhile of like a, like a, a conspiracy round table, right? So uh, this is a synopsis of this uh, document. It says, uh, Russell Rusty Nelson, Russell, Russell Nelson, central figure in the Franklin Credit Union scandal, um, 1989 to present, possesses evidence including photographs that implicates prominent law enforcement and political figures, including two past U.S. presidents in crime of child abuse, pornography, kidnapping, an exa example given missing child Johnny Gosh, drug smuggling, money laundering, illegal campaign financing, and illegal activities by the FBI and CIA. There are also appears to be ties to Iran-Contra. Since 1989, much of the evidence has been confiscated from Rusty Nelson. Some of the evidence remains hidden. In May 2000, Nelson was taken into custody for a parole violation in Nebraska and is to be extradited to 
Oregon away from the watchful eyes of his attorney, family, and friends, uh, Ted Gunderson, uh, and his, his attorney is John DeCamp. Now it says, Ted Gunderson, this writer and investigator of the Franklin cover-up, um, and Nelson's attorney, John DeCamp, author of the Franklin cover-up, believe Nelson's life is in danger. This report is an effort to prevent his being suicided or otherwise suspiciously killed. So uh, let's see here. It, uh, this is where it kind of, it just talks, it introduces you to the whole thing again. So Rusty Nelson and the Franklin uh, Credit Union Scandal. Um, it talks about the, scan the, the Credit Union Scandal itself. Uh, let me see here if it, it has mention of a Rusty Nelson. No, it doesn't in this uh, paragraph here. It talks about Larry King. It talks about how the FBI raided um, the, the Franklin Credit Union in 1988. That's where they found the tapes and pornography and stuff like that. It was confiscated. Okay, so here's where we're talking about the victims of uh, the the of the uh, of Boys Town, Nebraska. Um, so uh, it says here, grand jury throws out charges. Okay, on January 10th, 1989, the Nebraska State Legislature constituted a special committee to look into the allegations. Uh, with State Senator Lauren Schmidt as chairman on January 30th, 1990, Nebraska State Attorney General Robert Speyer called for a grand jury to investigate allegations. February 6th, 1990, former County District Judge Samuel Van Pelt was appointed a special prosecutor for the Douglas County Grand Jury, which convened on March 12th, 1990. On July 23rd, 1990, after hearing many hours of testimony, the grand jury issued an unusual and unprecedented report throwing out all the allegations concerning sexual child abuse and labeling the charges a carefully crafted hoax. Now, victim slash witnesses name prominent citizens as perpetrators. 80 children initially came forward as a result of newspaper publicity of the raid and subsequent stories in the local news. These children identified some of the most prominent citizens in the Omaha area as involved, including the including then Omaha Chief of, of Police Bob Wadman, former Omaha World Herald newspaper publisher Harold Anderson, former Omaha Vice Squad officer and later head of the Nebraska Forestry Service. He has a park named after him. Eugene Mahoney, former Omaha World Her Herald Entertainment columnist Peter Citrin, Knights of Kasarben financier Alan Baer, and Omaha County Judge Theodore Carlson. The children who came forward reported, among other things, satanic ceremonies of human and animal sacrifice. Uh, victim slash witness Troy Bonner recants his testimony under duress. Now, we saw Troy Bonner uh, in the documentary. He was actually the one that was giving really graphic descriptions of things that happened. Um, and he was the one that talked about uh, how he would do drugs and criticize them and, and kind of, you know, uh, I guess, question them about things. Uh, and so it goes on here. Uh, initially, four victims slash witnesses involved in the satanic cult sex drug ring were cooperative. Two of the four witnesses, Troy Bonner and Danny King, recanted their testimony. Troy Bonner, a young teenager, recanted uh, after his brother, Sean Bonner, died of allegedly suicide by a Russian roulette gunshot wound on January 17, 1991. 
Troy Bonner told John DeCamp, attorney for some of the witnesses, that his brother was afraid of guns. Bonner later left the Omaha area and disappeared. Danny King, the other young victim witness who recanted, has also disappeared. Then, of course, Troy Bonner comes back. And uh, uh, he, uh, he said that he had recanted the original testimony because he believed that um, it was a situation where, where it was either lie or die at the insistence primarily of the Federal Bureau of Investigations officials who were dealing with him at the time. Specifically, individuals named Mr. Mott and Mr. Culver. Uh, two of the victim witnesses who refused to recant were Alicia Owen and Paul Bonacci. Now, Paul Bonacci, we saw a lot of Paul Bonacci in the film. Uh, he was the uh, young man who was talking about the trips to Washington and, uh, you know, he, how he saw the flags. And, I mean, he was, he was really one of the main features of this film as far as uh, um, uh, uh, recording and documentation. Now, it says they were both indicted for perjury. So these two victim witnesses, Alicia Owen and Paul Bonacci, were both indicted for perjury on the basis of their testimony before the grand jury. They are now adults, but were children when they were first recruited into the satanic cult sex drug ring. So this is actually kind of sad. So this one talks about the Alicia Owens case and her imprisonment. Um, it says that Alicia Owen testified at the grand jury in March of 1990 that, she w that when she was 14 years of age, she had sex with then Omaha Chief of Police Robert Waldman. Because of this testimony, she was charged with perjury. While on bail awaiting trial, she attended college and was editor of the school newspaper. She was also an honor student. On August 8, 1990, Alicia Owen entered a plea of innocent. On November 9th, 1990, Alicia Owen's brother was found dead in a correction center cell said to have committed suicide. How, uh, how convenient, right? Uh, suicide by hanging. Alicia Owen was convicted of first offense perjury in 1991 and was sentenced on August 8th, 1991 to, to 9 to 27 years in prison. During her prison term, she was in solitary confinement for a period longer than any female citizen in the history of the state of Nebraska. Alicia was let out on parole in mid-1997. So in 1997, uh, that's when the Johnny Gosh story starts to come up, guys. Um, and, uh, um, well, Alicia, um, Alicia gets involved in this somehow. It says... Uh, one week after the show aired, Nebraska authorities picked up Alicia Owen and without explanation said she must serve out the remaining lengthy sentence in prison. Can you guys believe that? They let her out on parole and then uh, um, this Johnny Gosh things happens. Now, Johnny Gosh is a highly publicized 1982 kidnap victim from West Des Moines, Iowa, who has also been named as a victim in the Franklin Child Abuse Matters. So I guess because um, I guess because uh, Johnny Gosh came up and uh, that was out of the box, uh, they pick up Alicia. Uh, and um, again, in this situation, even though she's being told she has to go back to prison, she refuses to recant her story. Alicia is still incarcerated. Okay. Alicia's parents are raising Alicia's daughter, Amanda Jane, who, according to Alicia, was sired by Omaha Chief of Police Robert Waldman. Alicia was 15 years old when she had Amanda. Can you imagine if justice should be served on this case? Um, 
man, I just, I mean, they could, they could have a Mari Povich moment here and, you know, have a blood test and that would, you know, that, that would, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the people who put her behind bars aren't worried about whether or not she was innocent, but seriously, you know, like that could be taken care of quickly. Let's talk about Paul Bonacci and his imprisonment. Uh, let's see here. So in November 1991, Ted Gunderson was contacted by Nebraska Leadership Conference and asked to become involved in the investigation of the Franklin case. Paul Bonacci, his first interviewee, then in his early 20s, said that he had been active in the operation of the Satanic Cult Sex Drug Ring Network since he was six years of age. Paul Bonacci first reported his abuse by Larry King, Alan Bear, and others in 1986 to the Omaha Police Department two years before the Franklin Credit Union case began. Okay, we're going to skip over some of what uh, Paul Bonacci did because they're talking about how he helped. They're talking about how he helped, uh, um, you know, get other boys and kids to go uh, along with him to Boys Town uh, and other things that uh, that's they had him do. Okay, um, let's see, let's move along, move along. Now it says here, uh, not long after the Franklin case became public in 1989, was, or Paul Bonacci was arrested and sentenced to five years in prison for briefly touching a young boy on the outside of his pants. Uh, Bonacci has been diagnosed by at least three psychiatrists with multiple personality disorder, a psychiatric disorder now called disassociate identity disorder that is almost always a consequence of severe and early child abuse. Bonacci admits that one of his personalities touched the boy but abruptly stopped when he switched personalities and a remorse-stricken Paul reasserted control of his functions. John DeCamp, attorney and former long-term Nebraska state senator, represented Bonacci. DeCamp believes this abnormally long sentence was an attempt to silence Bonacci in the Franklin matter. So let me see if I can get a time frame on that. Um, let's see here. Man, there's some crazy, crazy stuff in this, these few paragraphs, guys. Uh, but no, it doesn't say. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and move. God, I, yeah, this is, that's crazy. Talks about how he, uh, he witnessed child auctions. That's crazy, guys. So 76 children who reported sexual abuse recant or refused to cooperate with the investigation. Following the dire consequences to victim witnesses, Alicia Owen and Paul Bonacci, Troy Bonner, and Danny King, the 76 other children recanted their reports of sexual abuse in the Franklin matter. So now we'll talk about this uh, Russ, Russell or Rusty Nelson. Now, he is attempting to preserve evidence. So this guy, Rusty Nelson, um, he uh, has photos and stuff. It says here, Rusty Nelson's testimony is consistent with that of Paul Bonacci. While testifying in U.S. District Court, Omaha, Nebraska, on February 5th, 1999, Rusty Nelson stated that as a private photographer for Larry King, his duties included taking photos surreptitiously of specific people. In his testimony, John DeCamp asked Rusty Nelson who was at these parties. Nelson replied, politicians, dignitaries, wealthy business people, 
young people. Larry, as far as I could gather, I left when I started putting the pieces together. You know, realizing there were two sets of books. There were very various discrepancies in the credit union and the fact that he obviously was into pimping gay prostitutes and children too, basically for influence purpose, whether it be politicians or whatever. He had extreme pull in the National Republican Convention. There was one day where we were on a plane and he had a problem and he couldn't get Wadman, then Omaha chief of police, couldn't get anybody here to work it out. He placed a call directly to Ronald Reagan. Nelson testified that he not only took pictures of King, but certificially took many photographs of King with other adults and young people involved and retained them for himself. Rusty Nelson testified that he also secretly took and retained other incriminating documents, including audio tapes, computer disks, and paper copies of documents, including ledgers, without King's knowledge. He testified that he often mailed these back to his home again surreptitiously. Uh, Rusty Nelson's testimony explains his attempts to keep these documents in his possession for the years since in order to protect his own life. Some of the photographs of Larry King taken by Rusty Nelson were shown during his testimony on February 5th, 1999. Rusty Nelson testified that Larry King flat out told me that he had taken care of killing a man named Charlie Rogers and made it look like a suicide. This was another deal, I believe, through Wadman, then Omaha chief of police. Nelson testified to one direct threat of his, on his life by Larry King, and in the ensuing years, many threats conveyed uh, with symbols such as a burning acorn that Larry King used to imply, drop it or you're going to get burned. Nelson testified again, uh, sorry, Nelson testified on February 5th, 1999, that twice these symbolic messages were quickly followed by his being shot at. His most recent statement made in writing on June 22nd, 2000 from jail states that this has now happened three times. So uh, this is a um, interview between uh, John DeCamp and Nelson. We'll go ahead and move along past that. Uh, so Gary Caradori, a key investigator of the Franklin cover-up dies in a plane crash. Uh, they mentioned that a little bit in the film. So, uh, Gary Kadori and his son, they were, uh, flying home basically, uh, from a, uh, football game and, uh, the plane exploded in midair. Okay. So again, uh, Gary Kadori, the investigator of the Nebraska state legislator special committee called Senator Lauren Schmidt, chairman of the committee from Chicago and told him he had the smoking gun. Uh, Caradori told Senator Schmidt he would fly that night from Chicago on his private plane with his son en route to Lincoln, Nebraska with the evidence. Okay, so then the plane blows up and uh, wreckage everywhere. They say the plane fell apart, actually, in, uh, in uh, some of these papers here. Now it says uh, uh, both Gunderson and Noreen Gosh, mother of missing child Johnny Gosh, later learned that Caradori had in his possession evidence that her son was a victim of the Franklin Satanic cult sex drug ring. 
Paul Bonacci and Rusty Nelson have both provided detailed testimony attesting to this. See sections on Johnny Gosh below. Uh, Gary Caradori repeatedly told friends in the weeks before his death that he feared his plane would be sabotaged. You know, I don't know why these people keep on flying on planes. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Richie Valens, Elvis. Wait, Elvis, we don't know why. He, he died on his toilet, didn't he? <laughs> Buddy Holly. I mean, come on, guys. Selena? No, just kidding. She was gunned down. All right. Uh, but why? Do, it's always the plane, right? Always on the planes. Okay. Both Gunderson and Noreen Gosh recently learned from uh, undisclosed sources whose lives and the lives of their loved ones could be placed in greater danger should their identities be revealed that a deputy sheriff of a local Illinois sheriff's department was the first person on the scene of the plane explosion. The deputy sheriff said that there was child pornography all over the farm field. The man picked up a large number of photographs and other evidence. The FBI immediately arrived with three flatbed trucks, grabbed the evidence from his hands, cordoned off the field, walked the field, picking up every piece of evidence, put the plane and its parts on the flatbed trucks and told the peace officer, this is confidential information and don't ever speak of it again. The evidence has never surfaced again in the Franklin investigation or any other investigation. The deputy sheriff did not remain silent. A few months later, as the sheriff and his wife were driving, the couple suffered a headlong, uh, head-on collision in which the man's wife was killed and he was very seriously injured. It is the opinion of Ted Gunderson, the writer, who has 49 years of experience in law enforcement and counterintelligence activities, that this probably was a kill-by-car covert operation attempting to silence and intimidate yet another witness in the Franklin case, as probably occurred, according to sources, in the death of Kathleen Swordson, the original complaint in the Franklin case. So Kathleen Sorensen also died in a head-on collision. Uh, and then uh, Gunderson talks about other kill-by-car techniques. So uh, now these are some of the letters that Gunderson wrote. For example, this was a letter that he wrote to the state attorney general, Don Sternberg. Um, and uh, I think he's writing about the obstruction of justice going on here and uh, what they uh, he found in the case, pornographic material, etc. Um, let's see here. Now as we move along... A little further. Uh, this was the response that he received. We are assuming, Mr. Gunderson, that in preparation for your letter, you have done more than simply parrot, uh, parrot unsubstantiated allegations made to you orally, or which you may have picked up in written material. That's terrible, right? And then uh, Gunderson sends uh, this attorney general his substantiating documentation. So uh, there's that little back. Now, here's an interesting one. Oh, guys, sorry, I didn't realize my screen was still on large. Check this out. Gunderson report of substantiating documentation goes ignored. Gunderson supplied this same eight-page report to... Dun, 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 dun. It's the B2 bomber. Big boobs, William Barr. The beluga whale. So uh, William Barr, United States Attorney General, received this information. Uh, look at Judge William Sessions. That's not Jeff Sessions, right? Director, FBI, Washington, D.C. Ron Lanners, U.S. Attorney, Omaha, Nebraska. Governor Ben Nelson, Lincoln, Nebraska. And FBI, Omaha, Nebraska. Isn't that crazy how uh, Bill Barr, his name comes up in this? And then uh, they also sent it to FBI, Omaha, Los Angeles, California. 
Uh, regardless of Gunderson's, none of these agencies or offices have ever conducted an appropriate investigation of this case. They were all ignored. So then it talks about uh, the book. Uh, John DeCamp, attorney representing Paul Bonacci, and a former long-term Nebraska state senator wrote the Franklin cover-up. Now it says here... Um, DeCamp advised in Chapter 14, the Justice Department acting through the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Omaha emerges from the record of the Franklin investigation not so much as a party to the cover-up, but as its coordinator, rigging grand juries, harassment of witnesses, incitement to perjury, and tampering with evidence, federal personnel were seen to apply all these techniques in the Franklin cover-up. Uh, Franklin connections to the Republican 1984 and 1988 Reagan-Bush presidential campaigns. So here's where we start to get into it a little bit thicker um, as we're moving along to uh, some of the involvement uh, by our government and some of the agencies. Uh, the Franklin cover-up um, and uh, 1986 and Webster G. Tarpley and Anton Cheitkin's book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, exposed connections between the Franklin Satanic cult sex drug ring and highest levels of the Republican Party and presidential campaigns. Larry King, founder of the Franklin Credit Union, now incarcerated for related criminal convictions, was appointed for the 1984 Republican National Reagan Bush presidential re-election campaign as chairperson for the black voters for the campaign and chairmanship of the National Black Republican Council. A developmental Committee for Fundraising. He sang the national anthem at the 1984 and 1988 Republican National Conventions. Uh, John DeCamp explains that at the Dallas National Republican Convention in 1984, King threw a giant extravaganza at South Fork Ranch years before exposure of the Franklin matters. DeCamp, a Nebraska senator at the time, was in attendance and saw youths at the party. Victim slash witness Paul Bonacci testified to being in attendance and described the party in exact detail to John DeCamp. Details John DeCamp claims could only be known by someone who was there. What a coincidence that uh, Bonacci and DeCamp were at the same event years before Bonacci, uh, DeCamp would become Bonacci's um, attorney. Bonacci's reports are corroborated by other central victim witnesses. The children in the foster adoptive home of Jarrett and Barbara Webb of Fort Calhoun, Nebraska. Jarrett Webb was a board member of the Franklin Credit Union. In 1985, children in the Webb home reported physical and sexual abuse by both Jarrett and Barbara Webb beginning in June 1985. The reports of foster child Ulysses Lisa Washington were supported in a polygraph examination. The book George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, states that in 1985, Ulysses Lisa Washington told youth care worker Julie Waters, as documented in her Department of Social Services March 25, 1986 report, that Larry King ran a massive child sex, homosexual, and pornography industry. She described how, beginning in 10th grade, she had been taken by plane by Larry King with other youths 
to be used as a child prostitute at parties in Washington, Chicago, and New York. Now, isn't it terrible how they call them child prostitutes, guys? Because uh, they can't be prostitutes if they're children. They have, they have no, no way of uh, defending themselves against these sexual predators. You know, they, they're, they're children. This is just straight-up child rape. Um, Lisa said that at these parties, she sat looking pretty and innocent and guests could engage in any sexual activity they wanted except penetration. Lisa named Vice President George Bush Sr. as in attendance at least twice, according to Walter's report. Lisa said she had first met Mr. Bush at the Dallas 1984 Republican Convention. She also saw Vice President George Bush Sr. at a party in Chicago in September of October, September or October of 1984, accompanied by two large white males. Uh, Walter's report states she, Lisa, indicates that she sat on a table at the party while wearing nothing but a negligee. She stated that George Bush saw her on the table. She stated she saw Vice President George Bush pay King money and that Bush left the party with a 19-year-old black boy named Brent. According to the Chicago Tribune of October 31st, 1984, George Bush Sr. was in Illinois campaigning for congressional candidates at the end of October 1984. Walter's report indicates that Lisa said she saw George Bush Sr. again at a party hosted by Larry King in Washington, D.C., in which there were no women, only men perfectly made up to look like women, older men and men in their younger 20s. She said she saw sodomy committed at those parties. So George Bush, the unauthorized biography, guys, get it at your local bookshop. Um, so, uh, this goes on to talk more about, um, the girls kind of the girls club at Omaha and Larry King's attendance, um, and more about the webs. And then again, we're talking about how, uh, Gary Cardori, the investigator, um, for the Franklin cover-up, one of them, uh, was killed in a plane. So we'll move on. Okay. Franklin Connections to Suicided Craig Spence, operator of Congressional Callboy Ring with ties to Reagan and Bush in 1989. Uh, in 1989, Craig Spence, lobbyist and political operative, made headlines due to exposure of his callboy ring that catered to the political elite, offering children to its clients. In his book, The Franklin Cover-Up, DeCamp writes, Spence's activities made banner headlines in the Washington Times on June 29, 1989. Homosexual prostitution inquiry ensnares VIPs with Reagan Bush. Spence's access was so good that he could arrange nighttime tours of the White House for his clients. The Times added on August 9, 1989 that Spence hinted the tours were arranged by top-level persons, including Donald Gregg, National Security Advisor to Vice President Bush. Spence, according to Friends, was also carrying out homosexual blackmail operations for the CIA. Now, I am going to say, guys, that while the text of this investigation is tying all of these things to the Bush-Reagan White House. 
um, they don't have any type of ID on President Reagan, okay? Now, I'm not saying he wasn't involved, but we all know about, uh, you know, I call him Daddy Bush the pedophile. We all know how Daddy Bush was involved with the CIA rather intricately. We all know that Daddy Bush was a pedophile and a homosexual. Um, so, and, and this is, this seems to be confirmed by the child victims. And this seems to be confirmed in some of this investigation, uh, as well as some of the documentation they have about itineraries and whereabouts. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw that out there that we don't, uh, we don't have a, we don't have a confirmation or a sighting of President Reagan. Okay. We know that, uh, Reagan was shot at and they attempted to kill him. Uh, but, um, I mean, I know there was a lot of other stuff involving that. Uh, but again, this is tied to their campaign and their administration. So I'm going to kind of, uh, keep it there. All right. And yes, Mr. Plora Laura talking about, uh, the $65,000 worth of hot dogs and pizzas ordered by, uh, Obama or Bozo, Barry Sotero. That is a story for another time, my friend. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure it harkens back to the days of, uh, Bush in office, right? We're talking about daddy Bush. Okay. Uh, according to one of Gunderson's, uh, th this writer's confidential sources, Craig Spence was a CIA operative. Connections were made between Larry King's child sex ring and that of Craig Spence. DeCamp continues, according to a Washington, D.C. investigative journalist who reached the Spence ring, the way we discovered Larry King and this Nebraska-based callboy ring was by looking through the credit card chits of Spencer's ring, where we found King's name. Another investigator with personal knowledge of the callboy ring, uh, rings operating in Washington put it this way. Larry King and Craig Spence were business partners. Look at two companies, Dream Boys and Man to Man, both of which operated under another service, Bodies of God. Jeez, Bodies of God. Craig Spence was found dead in 1989 of alleged suicide, another in a long chain of suspicious deaths connected to the Franklin case, President Reagan and Vice President Bush. See also George Bush's the unauthorized biography. So the rest of this is about the Iran-Contra dealing. We'll skip over that for now. Um, check this out. Larry King suddenly taken to psychiatric facility. Uh, DeCamp writes, on the morning of February 7th, 1990, Larry King was making plans to attend one of the, those fundraising events in Omaha featuring President George Bush. You see, again, he's, uh, he's, he's tied to Bush frequently throughout all of this investigation, not to Reagan. Out of the blue, U.S. Magistrate Richard Kopf uh, suddenly ordered King to be taken to a federal psychiatric facility in Springfield, Missouri, for tests. The word in Omaha was that King, indicted in federal court on May 19, 1989, on 40 counts of financial wrongdoing, was planning to ask Bush for help. So, uh, yeah. Okay, and then it talks about uh, the documentary that we just saw. It talks about uh, Johnny Gosh. That is a story for another day. That's a story of a kidnapping. Um, and also of, you know, um, child abuse, sex abuse, etc. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. 
All of this is all about Johnny Gosh, guys. Okay. Um, this is about the Franklin connections to Satanist Michael Aquino and Johnny Gosh. Uh, but we'll, we'll skip over this for now. Well, let's look at this. It says, John, uh, Paul Bonacci told Noreen Gosh, the mother of Johnny Gosh, that 14 days after Johnny was kidnapped, known Satanist Colonel Michael Aquino came to the house outside of Sioux City, Iowa, where Johnny had been kept since the kidnapping. Michael Aquino, then a colonel in the army, paid several thousand dollars to the kidnappers and left for, left for Colorado with him. So this is where... Uh, Michael Aquino ties into the um, Nebraska situation and all of the same people are, you know, they're all in the same story here. Interesting how all these stories relate to each other, isn't it? Okay. Million dollar judgment in favor of Paul Bonacci against Larry King. On February 27, 1999, the Honorable Warren K. Erbaum, Senior United States District Judge, Omaha, Nebraska, awarded a million-dollar civil judgment in favor of Paul A. Bonacci against Larry King. Okay, so we'll take a look at uh, why they ruled that way. So uh, let's see what... Um, Let's see what the Honorable Warren K. Erbaum said in regards to his uh, giving a million dollars to Paul Bonacci against Larry King. Two counts are alleged against the defendant Larry King in the complaint. Count uh, five alleges... Uh, Count five alleges were a conspiracy with public officials to deprive the plaintiff of his civil rights designed to continue to, to subject the plaintiff to emotional abuse and prevent him from informing authorities of criminal conduct. Count eight charges battery, false imprisonment, and infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and conspiracy to deprive the paint plaintiff of civil rights. Between December 1980 and 1988, the complaint alleges the defendant King continually subjected the plaintiff to repeated sexual assaults, false imprisonment, infliction of extreme emotional distress, organized and directed satanic ritual, forced the plaintiff to scavenge for children to be part of the defendant King's sexual abuse and pornography ring, forced the plaintiff to engage in numerous sexual contacts with the defendant King and others, and participate in deviant sexual games and masochistic orgies with other minor children. The memorandum of decision continues... He, Bonacci, has suffered burns, broken fingers, beatings of the head and face, and other indignities by the wrongful actions of the defendant, King, in addition to the misery of going through the experiences just related over a period of eight years, the plaintiff has suffered the lingering results to the present time. He is a victim of multiple personality disorder involving as many as 14 distinct personalities aside from his primary personality. He has given up a desired military career and has received threats to his life. He suffers from sleeplessness, has bad dreams, has difficulty in holding a job, is fearful that others are following him, fears getting killed, has depressing flashbacks, and is verbally violent on occasion, all in connection with the multiple personality disorder and caused by the wrongful activities of the defendant king. 
For 16 years since the abuse of the plaintiff began, I conclude that a fair compensation for damages he has suffered is $800,000. A punitive award also is justified, but the amount has to be limited because of the small effect that such a judgment would have on the defendant King, given his financial condition and his presence now in prison. I deem a punitive award of $200,000 to be adequate. So, uh, Noreen Gosh reports that Judge Warren K. Erbaum did not believe the testimony Paul Bonacci, of Paul Bonacci in the first proceeding after he was indicted on July 23rd, 1990. So, the same judge that charged him with perjury is now granting him a million-dollar reward. It says, uh, nor did he believe his testimony in the criminal trial in which he was sent to prison for touching the, clo- cloth, leg, the cloth leg of a boy. Then, February 7th, 1999, Judge Erbaum said he believed Bonacci, awarded him a million dollars, and conceded that he had been wrong in his earlier judgments. FBI Special Agent Ken Lanning of the Behavioral Science Unit, Quantico, Virginia, has claimed on numerous occasions there is no organized satanic movement in this country, only dabblers. This is the official position of the FBI. So that kind of is a wrap on that. Now, one has to wonder if the judge is going to award the victim, um, even though he previously sentenced him on a charge of perjury, doesn't, does, doesn't that merit that this case should be further investigated? And with that in mind, is Larry King still in a psychiatric ward? And wouldn't that merit that his um, his charges uh, actually declare that he uh, was, um, you know, guilty of um, a human trafficking ring, of child abuse, of something besides, uh, you know, financial wrongdoings is kind of what I'm thinking. Now, we know the answer to that is that they can't do that because then they would have to investigate and then they would have to see how, how deep this went. But uh, last I checked, Daddy Bush, uh, you know, was six feet under beneath a wrinkled flag. So, um, I mean, I mean, come on, you know, like, and even if Reagan were involved, Reagan's gone also, you know, like, uh, I mean, it's justice a little too late and no justice at all, basically, is what we're talking about here in this case. It's a very sad case. And, uh, you know, th- that's why I said they probably, they probably, uh, you know, they probably sent, sent these types of operations to people who are not so closely connected to the government. And, um, well, then you get Jeffrey Epstein, right? Uh, So here's the conclusion about Rusty Nelson. Let's not forget, Rusty Nelson was the photographer of Larry King, right? And uh, he, um, he had all the evidence... I heard a weird noise. Sorry. He had all the evidence and uh, he fled and he got arrested in Oregon on a parole violation. So now they're tr- they've been trying to get this evidence, destroy this evidence. They've threatened to kill Rusty Nelson. Uh, this part here, Rusty Nelson arrested in Oregon with thousands of photographs. Um, he had he had photos of Larry King. He had photos of uh, of the children. He had uh, photos of the sexual activity of the child rape, um, which they deemed pornography. Um, and um, it well, 
we, I probably don't need to read this, but it, it talks about how uh, he was supposed to go on probation. It talks about how um, he had gone up to Oregon and uh, he had been in contact with uh, D John DeCamp. John DeCamp, of course, was keeping Ted Gunderson informed. And um, they kept on moving his, uh, his um, they kept moving his dates around when he was supposed to meet with his uh, parole officer. So uh, basically they would set the date for like June uh, 21st and then, uh, or July 19th. And then they would move the date without telling him. And then they would tell him that he had a parole violation. Uh, so that was basically what they were doing with him and why he ended up getting arrested on a parole violation. Uh, he was supposed to seek treatment, but no one would help him. Uh, his parole officer wouldn't help him. The, the, um, uh, the secretaries would not help him. Um, so then he was uh, arrested. Extradition hearing for uh, Rusty Nelson. Okay. So I think we can wrap it up with this. Well, again, again, um, this, the whole reason why this document exists is because they were trying to tell his parole officer that he was in danger and this is why. Okay, so this will wrap it here. Uh, on June 19th, 2000, an extradition hearing was heard at Columbus, Nebraska. Rusty Nelson was charged with a parole violation. Neither the prosecuting attorney nor the public defender were informed of the details of the violation. Rusty Nelson was not present at the hearing. John DeCamp advised Ted Gunderson on June 19, 2000 that the hearing was initially scheduled for July 6th, but it was moved up to June 19th without notifying Rusty Nelson's attorney, John DeCamp, in time for him, uh, John DeCamp in time for him to attend. The outcome of the hearing was that Judge Frank Skorupa, Platte County Court in Nebraska, ordered Nelson return to Oregon. It is the opinion of Ted Gunderson, the writer, who has 49 years experience in law enforcement and counterintelligence activities that the scenario of returning Rusty Nelson to Oregon was orchestrated to gain control of him for unknown purposes. As John DeCamp states in his letter to Nebraska Governor Joanne, uh, Governor Johans, dated June 5th, 2000, Rusty Nelson will end up dead. Nelson has knowledge of and control of extensive evidence that would be incriminating to too many people at the very highest level of government. Rusty Nelson's risk of harm is greater in Oregon, 15,000 miles away from the watchful eyes of his attorney, his girlfriend, his relatives, and his friends in Nebraska. I am not aware of Rusty Nelson having any advocates, family, or friends in Oregon. Some of the techniques used by the CIA to eliminate witnesses include the use of a drug that is not traceable and induces heart attacks, medical tests that create diseases or rapid death, or officials uh, will claim a suicide, murder by another inmate, or other form of death, uh, disguising foul play. A slang phrase often used in instances of death against victims who expose corruption in the Clinton administration is that they are said to have been Arkansited. Okay. And that pretty much is a wrap on that. That's a letter uh, from, um, uh, John, is it John DeCamp, I think? Yeah. John DeCamp to the governor of Nebraska. Long, long letter. More letters from John DeCamp. So again, this is a, a document by um, a document by uh, Ted Gunderson. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and switch gears here a little bit. Let me see what I got next for you guys. 
We's almost done, guys. Thanks for hanging out tonight. I cannot talk about these topics without y'all strength, ladies and gentlemen. Because this is some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, let's look at this one real quick. I was gonna, I was gonna share with you guys um, some of the uh, some of the um, articles that people say that Ted Gunderson was uh, an FBI agent or whatever, or a CIA operative, and he was trying to cover all this stuff up. But as uh, too many, too many things to to the contrary, I've seen uh, where he's mentioning all of this information. Oh, you're welcome, Deplora Laura. Most definitely appreciate you hanging out with us tonight over there in Twitchville. Uh, so this, uh, this one says now, okay, for this one, guys, uh, I would say use your discernment, right? Now, a lot of this stuff, we for ourselves have pretty much already deduced it, or we've surmised it, or we've kind of had this feeling in our gut that a lot of it is probably true. Uh, actually, let me, let me put this up in safe mode. Hey, yeah, George H.W. Bush was a known pedophile and Satanist. Let's see what it says. Come on, this will be fun. This will we'll wrap up the show with this. Daddy Bush was a pedophile and a Nazi supporter. The globalists historically prefer selecting a president with the full card carrying elitist credentials, a member of multiple private inner clubs or secret societies like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Skull and Bone Society Committee of 300 Freemasonry. The people who have gone through these satanic cults can then be placed put in uh, places of power to keep the satanic New World Order-oriented society running. George H.W. Bush had every credential covered as a lifetime secret society member possessing all of the above. He was the son of U.S. Senator Prescott Bush, who was a confirmed financier to Hitler and covertly helped the Nazis during World War II. It was a young George H.W. Bush as a CIA operative who worked closely with the anti-Castro-turned-anti-Kennedy Bay of Pigs Cubans. It was also George Bush who was photographed in front of the Dallas Bookstore Depository on the very same day that JFK's brains, on the very same day that JFK was shot, uh, in November 1963. Now, isn't that wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, interesting history, right there, guys. George H. W. Bush was a known Satanist, evil pedophile who ran a congressional blackmail child sex ring during the 1980s, known as Operation Brownstone and Operation Brown Star, and later to become known as the Finders or the Franklin Cover Up. U.S. Vice President George H.W. Bush would sneak children over to Senator Barney Frank's condo, known as a brownstone, to their famous cocktail parties, where U.S. congressmen and U.S. senators, some willing and some unwilling participants, got a taste of the voodoo drug in their drink. To prove a case, you need one that was involved in an operation or a witness or documents. In this case, U.S. Customs documents prove the case without getting anyone still living killed. Inside the script, the document below is an article that appeared in U.S. News and World Report December 7, uh, 27th, 1993, uh, entitled, Through a Glass Very Darkly. This includes cops, spies, and a very old investigation, also copies of the U.S. Customs Report where the names are not blacked out. I'm curious now, ladies and gentlemen. Let's, ah, we're, are we going somewhere else? No. No, go back. Okay. 
Is there a link to that document here? <laughs> I am super curious. Uh, let's see here. Hmm. It should be right here. So George Bush. Ah, stop it. George H.W. No. Bush was a known. You are not going to read it for me. Uh, okay. Um, I want to see those documents. Okay. Let's go ahead and not get too distracted, right? I'm getting distracted. Okay. Uh, let's go back into this. The late Ted Gunderson. You may have purchased a set with the names blacked out from dirty FBI CIA blackmailer Ted Gunderson. See, so this is one that's saying that uh, Ted Gunderson uh, was dirty, that he was a, a, a cover-up artist. Uh, a known thief, liar, and killer. A true Daddy Bush FBI troll who surfaced in the 1990s to run cover for Bush and to identify those children who still may be living, who could be a liability to Bush, Gunderson, and CIA George Penders congressional child sex blackmail operation known as brown star okay so again i mean i i just don't i don't see anything that suggests that but then again i mean what do i know right uh okay they talk about larry king now see this is where they say ted gunderson was there to get rid of any witnesses or children from boys town an orphanage for all boys many of whom had been transported to washington dc and raped um there's Dick Cheney. Ah, Dick Cheney. Okay, well, you know what? This just goes into too much speculation for me to care to go on about it. I mean, we could, like, uh, what? We could, we could kind of, like, see what resonates with us as truth if we have a good sense of discernment or gut. But, uh, I mean, John Sununu, he's the current uh, governor of what? what? Where is he at? Vermont? Or he's somewhere in the Northeast... John Sununu. I remember making fun of his name. That's such a funny sounding name. Sununu. All right, guys. I think we're about to call it a wrap for tonight. Barney Frank. Ugh. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop on that. Let me just, uh, let me just play one more video for you guys before we go. And this one is going to be uh, a video about Ted, uh, Ted Gunderson again, because like, like it was said, he, um, he either died of a kidney failure or cancer, or he was poisoned as they found, uh, they found traces of arsenic in his body. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, a lot of speeches and talks that Ted Gunderson uh, um, did you can actually search him on YouTube and there's still a lot of them there where he's talking about all of this information and the FBI and stuff like that. Uh, but check this video out. So Ted Gunderson died in 2011. Uh, they say that they say this was one of the reasons why he died. Um, I mean, uh, with everything that he has covered, apparently, I mean, I'm sure this could have been one of the reasons why he died, but, uh, I don't think it would be the only reason why he died, uh, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> so, uh, let, let's, uh, you guys are probably gonna be like, oh, how interesting. Check this out. The death dumps, otherwise known as chemical trails, are being dropped and sprayed throughout the United States, in England, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Europe, 
and I have personally seen them not only in the United States, but in Mexico and Canada. Birds are dying around the world. Fish are dying by the hundreds of thousands around the world. This is genocide. This is poison. This is murder by the United Nations. This element within our society that's doing this must be stopped. I happen to know of two of the locations where the airplanes are that dump this crap on us. Four of the planes are out of the Air National Guard, Lincoln, Nebraska, and the other planes are out of Fort Still, Oklahoma. I personally have observed the planes that were standing still in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, at the Air National Guard. They have no markings on them. They're huge bomber-like airplanes with no markings. This is a crime, crime against humanity, crime against America, crime against the citizens of this great country. They must be stopped. What is wrong with Congress? This has an effect on their population and their people and their friends and their relatives and themselves. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with the pilots who are flying these airplanes? They're dumping this crap, this poison on their own families. Somebody has to do something about it. Somebody in Congress has to step forward and stop it now. Thank you. I'm Ted Gunderson. So I don't know, guys, with everything that Ted Gunderson exposed or wrote about, do y'all really think that they killed him because he was talking about chemtrails? Like, um, I mean, uh, I guess back in what, the early 2000s, that was not a topic that people were so, uh, I don't know, informed about, you know? So I, I don't know, guys. Uh, I, I find that kind of... Uh... He has another video where he calls out... Uh... Who does he call out? He calls out Obama and the CIA to stop doing the uh, chemtrailing. Uh, but anyhow. All righty, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, again, thank you all for uh, being here tonight. Uh, there's strength in numbers, right? Strength in numbers. Uh, Redbeard, Two Rivers, Sonia JHC, Anka Vanka, Sweetie Heart, and uh, 123SKG. Let me see what else we got here. Deplore Laura over at Twitch. Everyone else watching over at Twitch and Clout Hub and beyond. Uh, thank you all again. Uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon. <laughs> hey, what's up? I've never seen that uh, name in the uh, chat room before. Thanks for being here with us tonight. Uh, what's going on at the White House tonight after hours? Ooh, lordy. Don't want to know, Amazon. <laughs> I don't want to know what's going on at the White House after hours. And everyone else out there who's joining us tonight, thank you again. Um, we have what? I mean, it is, uh, it is, uh, it is uh, Human uh, Trafficking Prevention and Awareness Month right now. That's why we're covering these topics more than usual. And we really had not been covering this topic too much at the Sea Report other than reporting on uh, uh, ring... Uh, du uh, trafficking busts and ring busts and stuff like that. Uh, but this is a little bit deeper. This is much deeper. Rail and on, I see you, buddy. 
And um, uh, we, I don't know when we'll do our next show like this. I'll try and do one more before the end of the month for sure. Uh, join us on Friday for Mr. Seen the Dark. Um, Java is going to join in again on the conversation. What's up, uh, John Henry 37? Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll, we're going to talk more about this on this topic on Friday. I don't think we have anything too specifically set up. I know there's a couple of things that Java wants to get into. And I mean, it, it'll be a, uh, it'll be a casual, and uh, unscripted, and I say that because, you know, I prepare this. It's not actually scripted, not like I have a teleprompter or something like that. But, uh, you know, a more unscripted and casual conversation on Friday evening. So uh, if you want to join in, come on over and check it out on Friday at uh, Mr. C in the Dark here at the Mr. C channel. And Mr. C TV will have the show broadcasting on all uh, all uh, platforms. Um, but, but yeah. The time is now, guys. The time is now. This information needs to get out again. Because, again, guys, this is old sauce to some people. This is stuff that some people have never heard. But you keep it in the cycle. You keep giving it new life and it will stick, guys. At some point, justice will be served. And uh, we're at a point that's so much closer than we have been forever um, as, as a society, as a people, and as a culture, with people waking up more and more every day, there will be a new wave of, of uh, people waking up about this topic. Think about Ghislaine Maxwell, guys. Think about the J Virginia Jufree and Prince Andrew and Alan Dershowitz trials that are coming out. Like, there's still that possibility that this information will get out, okay? And as Prince Andrew is, uh, you know, there's nothing higher than royalty, right? Well, if Andrew can go down, I think that moves the Overton window uh, far enough down that people will be like, well, if Andrew can go down a prince royalty, then we can take out politicians, we can take out presidents, we can take out celebrities, we can take out businessmen, because if royalty can fall, if royalty can commit such heinous crimes, and they can be involved in pederasty, and they can be involved in human trafficking, doesn't it stand to reason that people below royalty could also be involved in that? I'd say so. I'd say so myself. And then don't forget, we also have the case of Peter Nygaard, the Canadian uh, uh, fashion designer. His trial is also coming up as well. And he's also in for the same thing, all right? And then let's not forget, in the Alan Dershowitz case, they're going to depose Les Vexner, okay? So Les Vexner's tied to Epstein, and he's tied to all of this stuff as well. You know, and uh, uh, we mentioned the Humpty Dumpty, uh, Humpty Dumpty group that works in Congress, uh, and uh, Mark Epstein, who's uh, the brother of Jeffrey Epstein is tied to that as well, you know? And then we talked about the islands where Ghislaine Maxwell was able to uh, submarine to. And we gave you the connection between Joe Biden and his brother owning an island nine miles away from Epstein's island, okay? So there's that connection there too. So it's all an intricate web, but the light is shining. We can see the strings. All we have to do is be brave enough to follow the path and see where it leads, guys. Uh, we know where it leads in our hearts and in our souls, as ugly of a situation as it may be. But justice must be served. And these victims have gone on without justice for long enough. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back tomorrow and we will return to our headlines per the usual. Um, but tonight was just a special night uh, for this uh, topic again. 
Human Trafficking Prevention and Awareness Month. Thank you so much for being part of the audience, y'all. I appreciate your participation and also your attendance and presence. Uh, real quick, let me release the scratching for you guys out there over in uh, Foxhole Pilled Land. And also, I missed the gold pill donations, guys. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, don't forget, you can also check us out at the podcast at um, The Sea Report over anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm slash The Sea Report. If you are already a subscriber for free, thank you so much. Every time you listen to an episode, it helps support the show. If you are subscribing on a monetary basis, I thank you so much for your support. And uh, I know I'm behind on some episodes. We started uploading some today and and we will continue doing that that throughout the week. Uh, Deplore Laura on Twitch and all the Twitchers. Good night, Clout Hub. You guys have a great night. My friends and family over at the Foxhole.app. You guys have a great night. Um, we will see you guys tomorrow. And as I always say, be safe, be blessed, and God bless America. We'll see you tomorrow.